five minutes. Five minutes. Okay, so all right, so that's the that's the five minutes. All right, Sandy, thank thank you very much. Okay, guys, so um, so again, and we just invite you. Thank you, thanks, Katie. We just invite you to um, to make sure that you share that, right? So you can share this with a sponsor, you can share it on an outreach call, you can share it with sponsees. We're we're all good here, right? Um, you know, just you don't 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 keep this to yourself. And um, the reason why it's it's kind of good for me to to go through and do these kind of things sometimes. And I was just talking about this with a sponsee before, as we're talking about sharing, you know, and and things we want to share at the meeting level versus things we share when you're sharing at the you know if you're 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 speaking at a meeting. Um, but don't forget about how powerful it is to to retreat to the, the 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 material here and you can pitch that in a meeting you know it doesn't always have to be you know what isn't working or what needs to change or you know what what's the latest screw up i did and how did i get reconciled on it but but going in and just pitching like gosh it's been a long time since i've looked at this but here here's i, I looked at kind of the 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 three promises that i forget how these things have played out for me like it's it's a that's a really powerful program of attraction. That's as powerful a program of attraction as showing up in a smaller clothing size, right? That really getting on fire with what's possible here and what what happens here. So anyway, good. I'm I'm glad you did that. That's a good assignment, and um, and I I wish we had time to hear. I'd love to I'd love to to know what those are some of those are about. But maybe you guys some of you will call me on outreach calls. And maybe you can share that. I'd love to hear. So let's take a look now. Let's take a look at step ten. Right. So again, in the book here, in the step ten, in the AA Big Book, it's something you're doing throughout the course of the day. So there's a paragraph right in the middle of page eighty four. This thought brings us to step ten, which suggests right. And anytime. <laughs> Anytime it says the word suggestion in the big book, like, you know, kind of do it with a wink and a smile, like suggestion. It's really just a suggestion. Anytime the book says suggestion, because it's full of direction. And um, anytime it, it says suggest, you can think of it as like, you know, if you fall in a pool and you don't know how to swim, I suggest you start moving your arms and your legs. Actually, just anytime they say suggestion, just just follow it as direction. That's really how it how it is. <laughs> This thought brings us to steps 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Listen to that sentence. Vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Now that's particularly relevant when you hear that this book tells us that our problem is a, it's a spiritual malady, right? That all of a sudden we've entered into the realm of the spirit now. That's actually a bigger promise than really just about anything we just read in the promises that we have now entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Somebody had a question about that before. We're going to get to that now. Uh, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So again, somebody had a question earlier in the day and said, is it just about 
uh, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. No, what my sponsor said to me is it's about um, anytime I'm off the beam. And anytime I'm convinced I'm right and you're wrong, I'm off the beam. I might have a sense that I'm not sure this makes so much sense, what, what somebody's saying. So let me hear a little bit more or let me, let me think about this. That's not the same thing as you're wrong and I'm right. Anytime I'm in that place, my husband always says I'm at my most dangerous when I'm convinced I'm right, right? That's when he's like, oh, head for the hills, right? Let me get out of here. So um, anytime I'm off the beam, it's time for an, a step 10, which I do throughout the course of the day. Because if you're doing a 10 step as it's outlined in the big book, you're not going to end up with any material at the end of the day. That's what's so interesting. It's only in the 12 and 12, in the AA 12 and 12, it gets delineated, it gets changed into a 10 step is something we do at night, right? But at any rate, so we're just kind of playing a game here and we're playing the game based on the big book. So what we're doing is what, what happens throughout the course of the day. And I've got a little acronym for you, right? So it's God makes apple sweet, right? God makes apple sweet, G-M-A-S, God. Because the first thing it tells me to do is it tells me to, and you can, you can pull it off to the side if you want. I always have people pull it off and just write the little steps, write the little numbers, underline, do little steps. But it asked God, it asked me to have God remove it. So, uh, and I remember when somebody pointed this out to me, and this is the, the power of the big book, right? Because I've been reading this book for years. I, I read two pages just about every day. I certainly haven't done it all the years of my sobriety, but let's say I've done it, I don't know, 60 to 70% of the days I've read at least two pages a day in the big book. So I've been through the book myriad times. I have five or six books. I have a third edition that's you know fallen apart on me. I and I'm 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 always highlighting and annotating because that's the direction I was given. So there's I, I know this stuff. And in year 22, somebody pointed this out to me. And as God is my witness, it felt like I'd never even seen this before, despite the fact I had three big books at the time where I'd highlighted and annotated this, but this little task hadn't landed for me. That's what I love about the magic of the book. That's why I love it that that it doesn't matter how much time you've gotten. Well, that's not true. That's not true. I'm glad that I have a sponsor who has 38 years. And I'm not somebody who said whoever gets up the earliest has the most sobriety or abstinence. That's nonsense. I'm glad that there are people who've been here for years and have gone through divorces, marriages, births of child, children, deaths of children, right? all kinds of things. And they haven't had to pick up. They haven't had to use, they haven't had to gain weight. They haven't had to vomit. They haven't had to starve themselves. I'm really grateful for that. But, um, but I'm also really grateful that I'm very, very clear that I haven't gotten it yet. I'm getting it, but I haven't gotten it. And I know that because I'll have so many instances of this where something gets pointed out to me, or I see something that's always been there. And I know because I've got it underlined and it didn't land. So I love that. I love that I can always see with fresh eyes and I can always, I can always be brand new all over again. Like I, I love that. And I love that this got pointed out to me in year 22 of sobriety, which means it was year, you know, 10 of abstinence. And this one got landed for me in terms of this 10th step. So God makes apple sweet and it directs me to ask God to remove it. And I remember when this sponsor pointed it out to me, because who wants to have, you know, a sponsor pointing something out to you that, you, you know, that you haven't seen, especially when it's somebody who has much less time than you, right? <laughs> Ow. But um, I thought, oh, this is dumb. This is, this is a dumb, dumb task, dumb assignment, right? 
But she laid it out for me, all those four steps. So the first one is I asked God to, re to remove it, whatever it is. She said, when you're off the beam, figure out what it is. Don't worry about the story. We've already been educated on a four step that a story is very, very uninteresting in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's very, very interesting in the 12 step rooms. Stories aren't interesting. We don't want people on our team. She said, identify the character defect be behind whatever it is that you did and ask God to remove that, right? God makes apple sweet, M. Share it with another man or woman, right? So making a quick outreach call. Uh, hey, Danielle, it's Sheila uh, calling from program. You got a minute? Yeah, sure. What's up? Oh, I'm just doing the quick 10 step thing. You know, I just uh, just found myself in a situation. I got some real anger going on and I just, you know, I'd ask God to remove it. And I just wanted to share it with someone. Oh, Sheila, what's happening? What are you angry about? Oh, Danielle, thanks so much. You know, I don't even want to get into the story. My gosh, I just do not want to run with that. But I'll see you at the meeting on Tuesday. Thanks for asking and thanks for listening. I'll, I'll keep you posted, you know, 10 step thing, right? Bye. Because I just don't want to get into the story. I don't because that's just going to get me all amped up again. So God makes apple sweet. God makes, right? Ask God to remove it. Man, share it with another man or woman. God makes apples. A, amends. Make amends if necessary. So if I've got that anger going on and I haven't done any damage out in the world, right, to you or to me, then I don't owe any amends. And it's nice when I can catch it ahead of time. And you do this process long enough, this, this daily 10 step, right, the thing that you're, where you're catching them as they come, you have, you have more and more of an opportunity to catch the things before you do the damage. So you don't have to make the amends, right? But if I have to make the amends, I make the amends. God makes apples sweet, right? Sweet. Service. Do a service job. And the direction I got from that first sponsor who pointed this out, right? <laughs> to be this thing that I'd seen and had not seen. She said, 12-step service doesn't count because you're already going to have a payoff with that. So find a way to do another kind of service in the world, but it's not 12-step service. And I just thought, this is ludicrous. This is absolutely bananas. You're, you know, you're a horrible sponsor. I feel like I should fire you immediately. And this is dumb. But, you know, again, I don't argue with sponsors or cops and I know how to keep my mouth shut. And the only correct answer to a sponsor is yes. So I said, yes, I'll try it. So what was going on within two hours, I had some stuff come up. Remember I told you I have a health thing and I, all of a sudden I ended up in a huge fear situation around this health stuff. And I have no idea where it came from. I just know all of a sudden it was upon me. And I had been out the door. I was going to be heading out the door to go to a yoga class. And all of a sudden, again, I just, I, I, I was petrified, I, you know, almost in tears. And I, I, it, it, and I, this was not the first time I had had this experience and it, it's a big deal. And somebody in my family had died of the complication and I'd work for somebody. I mean, I just, I had a lot of experience with this and I was just scared as hell. And I, and I thought, well, of course, I'm not going to go to the yoga class, right? Everything, I'm not doing anything anymore. I'm not doing anything anymore. The fear is overtaking me. I'm not doing anything. And I thought, wait a minute, this is probably, probably a good opportunity for that goofball 10-step process that just got pointed out to me two hours ago. I thought, oh, okay, I'll do it. So I, you know, God, please remove the fear, right? Please remove the fear. I have the fear around the health stuff. And then I picked up the phone and I called somebody, you know, hey, Pam, it's Sheila, you got a minute. Yeah, sure, what's up? Oh, I just have some fear coming up. Oh, Sheila, what are you afraid of? Oh, Pam, I don't even want to get into it. Plus I'm late for, late for a yoga class. Thanks for listening though. I'm just doing that 10 step thing, you know, that page 84 blitz. Talk to you later, right? See you next week at the meeting, bye. 
right? And then I, uh, I don't owe anybody an amends because I haven't done any damage. And I can end up so afraid of something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt you, especially my husband, right? You know, it's kind of like you stub your toe and it hurts like hell. So you hit your thumb with a hammer to distract yourself from that stubbed toe. But I hadn't done that. I hadn't done any damage to him. I hadn't hurt myself. And there are things I can do to hurt myself, right? I can procrastinate. I can stay up late. I can pick my face. There, there are lots of ways that I can punish myself and just do a number on myself and hurt myself to get myself distracted from the pain. But I hadn't done any of those things. And I, um, I, uh, then I get in the car and I drive over to the yoga class. And I remember, oh, shoot, as I'm, you know, walking into the class, I think I'm supposed to do service. That's the, you know, God makes apple sweet service. I'm supposed to do service in 12 steps. Service doesn't count. <sighs> Snore. And I, so I started picking up trash on my way into the, uh, into my yoga class, right? And put it in the trash can on my way in, washed my hands, went into the class. And I was in class for about 10 minutes when all of a sudden I realized the fear. And I mean, it was a mind numbing fear. It was gone. It was absolutely gone. And I've never really had that kind of fear come up around that in the 11 years since. I've had some, right? But nothing like that. Nothing like, like that kind of paralyzing fear where I feel like I'm going to drop everything. I've never had it happen since. So I got sold on this process right from the beginning. And I got to tell you, I, I have had on more than one occasion, a couple of occasions, not since, though I, it did just happen to me somewhere. And if I can remember it, I'll tell you about it. But I was in line at a Macy's and I'm, you know, I get up there and I don't have the right coupon or something's expired and I'm pissed off because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get the additional 12 cents of savings because I don't have the right coupon. And so I have to cause a scene, right? I have to, not, I mean, not a wingnut scene because I used to work in retail, but I mean, just being ornery and cranky, right? And all of a sudden I realized this and I didn't want to jump out of line because there were people behind me. So I actually did skip the second step. I didn't call somebody. I didn't jump out of line and say, oh, hang on a minute, because you guys, you guys all wait in line and you wait behind the counter, even though I just mouthed off to you or I got kind of ornery. Let me just, uh, you know, finish this second step of the, you know, let me finish this second part of the process. I just, I just ran with it. So I, I heard myself say, speak unkindly to her, right, in an impatient way. And as I said, I've worked retail. It's, it's, it's a tough run because you cannot, you, you, you just, you're, it's, it's not a fair fight and people can be unkind and, and you can't do it back. Not if you want to keep your job. And so I asked God, you know, I just, oh God, you know, please, that's, you know, that's my unkindness or my anger or whatever, whatever it was, I identified, please remove it. And, um, and uh, didn't call anybody. And I clearly, I owed an amends. And I said to the woman, I said, you know, I just want to apologize to you. Uh, I just talked to you pretty unkindly. And she said, oh, that's okay. And I said, no, it's actually not. You're kind to be so gracious about it, but it's not okay for me to talk to you like that. And I'm sorry. I got to tell you, it, it changed. It changed every, not even just the interaction between the two of us, but even the people behind me that overheard it. Like it just changed everything. And I think I, 
I think there was one other time a couple of years later where I had to do the same thing at a Macy's, right? <laughs> Somehow Macy's brings out the, you know, the, the, the crank ball in me, but um, I've never had to do it since. Though something did just happen. Uh, uh, I can't even remember what it was. I'm not going to remember, but I know I said this because the person, because that's how usually people will respond because people are so not used to somebody apologizing to them in that kind of a situation. And, uh, and the person said, it's, uh, oh, that's okay. That's all right. That's okay. And I said, no, you're, you're kind to be so gracious. It's actually not okay for me to talk to you like that. Um, but, but thank you. And I am really sorry. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for being so compassionate with me. And it just changes everything. I got to tell you, when you do that at Macy's, they want to put free stuff in your bag. They just do because nobody, you're just not used to that. We're just not used to that. We're, we're, where we take responsibility. That's the best of 12 step programs. That's that, this is the greatest of all the benefits that have happened to me in the various programs I'm in. The best is that I know how to do that. Now I know how to stand in front of somebody stranger or family member or friend and say, I'm sorry for how I behaved. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I cannot believe I have to say this, but I actually just lied to you. I just told you a lie. Forgive me. I am, I'm embarrassed. I, this has changed my whole life because I know how to do this. It has. And, um, and it's, you know, it's straight 10 step. So uh, don't miss out on that gem, right? On page 84, right? It's, uh, it's just the, uh, it's just the best thing. And then there's more information, you'll read about it on page 85, right? Um, talking about it, but this is the, you know, the first place it gets identified that, that again, that line that we have entered the world of the spirit. And since the, the, the whole emphasis in the big book is that this is a spiritual malady, that's our problem. That's where we are different than a commercial weight loss group thing, because we believe here that there's an allergy that we're dealing with, the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body, and it's a spiritual malady. And the big book says, I do not know how to form a, a, a relationship with God. And the 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12 says, I do not know how to form a true partnership with another human being. Both of them are true. They're actually kind of one and the same, but that's where it, it, it kind of differs here. But pay special attention as you are reading over on page 85 yourself, because it continues up here talking about the spiritual stuff. And we don't want to lose sight of that because that's what it's saying our core problem is. Again, I don't have a weight problem. I got a spirituality problem. I got a heart problem. And um, it's easy to let up on the middle of page 85. It's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. Let, yet we are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. Okay. All right. So I know we're going to be coming up here on our first acknowledgement. So this is nice. We're in, we're in good shape here because we are now going to be getting to step 11. So we're going to do, we've got a handout for you, which is going to be good. But before we do that, um, let's do, let's do a little 10 step process, right? Since we just did that, let's do another little exercise here. We'll, we'll take, uh, we'll take, uh, let's take, we're, we're doing good on time here. So let's take, let's take four minutes. Great. So, and I'm going to give you our first, Sheila, 
I'm going to give you our first alert is coming up at 320. So I don't know. Okay. So that's your first, first alert. That is terrific. Thank you so much. And I'll tell you what, Sandy, I'm going to let you go ahead and start the timer now, Sandy. Just go ahead and put it at four minutes, but do us a favor, Sandy, give us a minute when we have one minute, right? So maybe set the timer for three minutes and then tell us we have one minute and set it for another minute, okay? So we'll do a total of four minutes. And all I would invite you guys to do is go back to that page 84. And if you've forgotten it, just remember that God makes apples sweet. So think of the last time that you can remember that you were off the beam about something, right? and go through the process, right? Identify what it is, what it is you would be asking. You're just writing this down, one, two, three, four. What is it you would be asking God to remove? So again, when I'm in line at the Macy's, so I would be asking God to please remove my uh, anger, you know, controlling, judgment, whatever it was, right? Find, think about the last time you were off and go through those four steps. What is it you would be asking God to remove, right? Who would you make the outreach call to, right? Just practice this, just play with this. And um, this, the next step, if you, if you, in this last instance you're thinking about, if you needed to make an amends, how would you make those amends? What would you say? And what is the service you would do if you were gonna do it and follow the lead that my sponsor had given me that 12 step service doesn't count? What could you do? Okay. And uh, Sandy's got our time going. Hey, Sandy, how much time do we have left? We have uh, eight seconds, but I just want to let you know, I'm going to give you a two minute warning um, before we start the Q 20 minute Q&A at 840. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know how the time is good. That's that's four minutes, <laughs> everyone. Okay. Okay. Hi, Sandy. It's so good to see you. I didn't realize that was you. Oh, I know. You too. But I miss you. We got to talk soon. Yeah. All right, guys. Okay. So that's your that's our, our, our uh, little task there. So then again, thank you, Katie. Thank you for reminding me, my love, that I forget to get started again with my video. Um, uh, so that, you know, just... Uh, I got to tell you, make friends with it. I just, I love that. I love that little process. I really do. And I love the little, I love the little steps that go with it. So, so, um, so you're, you're, you, you got a little gem there. And um, I just, again, it's, it's really one of my favorite things. So, okay. So now we're going to be on step 11 and this is exciting. So we have a really cool handout that we're going to put up in the chat and then we can also put it up to screen share and we can go through this because, um, and the step 11 in, in, according to the big book, it's both what you do at night, right? And it's what you do on awakening. So a lot of people, when they're thinking, talk uh, about step 11 in reference to the big book, they talk about the on awakening part, but the reality is it also talks about what it is that we are doing at night, right? It starts at the bottom of 85. Step 11, suggest prayer and meditation. Again, remember that anytime it says suggest, like wink, wink, um, <laughs> not so much a suggestion, right? Uh, suggest prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer, okay? And um, when we retire at night, again, I'm on page 86 now, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Ooh, you recognize that? That's the fourth column of an, of an inventory. 
So um, do we owe an apology? Have we done any of those things? Do you see that? So that, in, according to the big book, and, and again, it doesn't matter whether you're doing it, you know, in reference to the 12 and 12 or the big book, right? And, and don't, don't, don't get into heated discussions about this. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But it's just interesting how it, it, it shifted, right? Between the, the, the dozen years between the big book coming out and the AA 12 and 12. So, um, so there's all those things, right? But then in the middle of the page on page 86, it says, on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. So now this is the document that you have, because I had given at one point, some uh, sponsor had given me the direction to go through in that section on that on awakening and find all the places where it's giving very specific direction, okay? So again, I think it'll come up in our chat and are we gonna, can we screen so, share? So yeah, the, the three documents that I have to screen share are step four duplex two dot PDF. There's page 86 and then there's the original manuscript of how it works. So it's the page 86 one, right? It is indeed, thank you, Katie. Okay, no problem. I will screen share that now. So again, so what I was directed to do was I was to go through that page 86 through the end of that chapter, right, which is the step 11 thing and outline all the places where, where there was direction, where it was very specific direction, and it was telling me what to do. Anytime it was doing that, that it was giving me specific direction, I was supposed to highlight it, right, and pay attention to that direction. So we can just read this, right, we'll read this on the screen. God, please let my thinking be free. And again, these are all the pages between 86 and the end of the thing. These are in the midst of this. And actually though, just looking at it, I realized I'm gonna redo that page because there's one more place where it's actually giving me direction and it actually precedes this. So it's on awakening. Let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Actually, and I would put that line before this, God, please let my thinking be free of self-seeking, self-pity and dishonest motives, because that's direction. It's saying we consider our plans for the day. So I would have it here. We consider our plans for the day. God, please let my thinking be free of self-seeking, self-pity and dishonest motives. I know that intuition and inspiration is a working part of my mind and I will rely on it. The right answers will come. Please show me what my next step is to be and take care of any problems. I'll be quick to see where religious people are right and make use of what they have to offer. Especially, please free me from self-will. I will meditate today. If agitated or doubtful, I'll pause and ask for the right thought or action, constantly reminding myself, I am no longer running the show, humbly saying to myself many times each day, thy will be done. Happily, this will free me of fear, anger, worry, self-pity, and foolish decisions. This freedom will energize me and make me more efficient in life and love. It works. I'll be lovingly disciplined in the way I've just outlined. And usually what I do, and I think just because we've, we've, you know, are doing this and this is on my mind now, I'm actually going to bring this back into my morning routine because I used to do this along with my morning prayers and I've had different prayer routines, whether I would go through the 12 steps. Again, I always do it on my knees because that's what I was directed to do on my knees in the morning and on my knees at knees at night and not uh not uh in supplication to a god in the heavens but cloistering to the god within right just like it talks in in a couple different places about the great reality deep within and then uh in the back in the spiritual um uh experience in the back of the book one of the uh, appendices in the back 
it talks about my AA sponsor pointed out the a great description of God tapped an unsuspected inner resource, right? So God abides within. So when I'm on my knees, and if somebody doesn't feel like getting on their knees for whatever reason, because you need knee replacements, or you're just not into it, or it just doesn't resonate for you based on spiritual tradition, or a lack of one, or one that's unfamiliar to you, then fine, right? Do your thing. But for me, it's not, and I, I do, I mean, I, I, come, I came from the Catholic tradition, so there's nothing unusual to me about getting on my knees. But it's not, again, it's not in supplication to a God without within uh, out in the heavens but it's cloistering to that god within right and when i think of god within it's so much harder for me to be hard on myself or be mean to myself or 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 still kind of you know pull up those old patterns right and do those old things where i'll just go after myself it's really hard to do that when i'm staying so cognizant of the idea that god resides within and i used to to, to do this. This used to be part of my morning routine. And I think I'm going to bring it back because I loved it. And I have a buddy in program and he, what he used to do is he had recorded himself saying this and he used to play it. He'd put it as, you know, when people used to have, you know, uh, cassette tapes in their car, <laughs> he used to play it on his way into work. And, and he had a, you know, he had a big job, very successful job in the finance industry. And he just talked about how this just got him straightened out, staying very, very, um, conscious about what it is he was directed to do at the beginning of the day heading into the day it's a really powerful thing so um so again i'm just going to be threading in that part that says we consider our plans for the day so i think i would say we consider our plans for the day you know uh, god i'm considering my plans for the day uh please let my thinking you know so again this is the whole thing you just keep reading that book studying it over and over again you see things you've never seen before i just i love it I get, you know, everything old is new again, you know? So that is our wrapping up on step 11. Again, we're doing so good here in terms of our time. We're gonna be close in seven minutes. We'll do questions if we have any questions. Uh, so now we're back to step 12, right? So we are back to step seven. I mean, chapter seven. So now what I'll have somebody do, remember I started somebody out this way. When we start working together, I have them read chapter seven, which just, freaks them out. What am I doing reading the step 12 chapter? Um, but now they're going to read it again after we've been through all the steps, maybe takes a couple of months. It doesn't take a long time to work the steps in the, as they're outlined in the big book, depending on what kind of the amount of material you have on a four step, right? Um, uh, but it doesn't take a long time. It doesn't take a long time at all. And uh, now we're back to, to chapter seven. They read it again, but they have a totally different take on it now. Totally different idea because they've been through all the steps. And when they get to that paragraph on the page 96, let's hear that one more time. Do not, do not be discouraged if you're, again, I'm at the top of page 96. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to try to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might've deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance, right? 
And now the person has a totally different take on it, having been through the steps. And they also understand how essential it is that they get themselves in a situation where they're working with somebody who wants to work with them. And we don't try and convince anybody or cajole anybody into doing this. It's not about that at all, right? It's just about uh, presenting the, the gift, right? The option. And how can I be of service? And if you'd like the help, I'd love to help you, right? So that's what we've got there. We've got one final assignment that we're going to do. And this is kind of interesting. This is nice that we're, we're going to have time now to do this. So if you've got your big book, turn to page 27. And this is, uh, this is when uh, Roland Hazard, who had more money than God, right? And was the crazy alcoholic trying to solve his alcohol problem. Couldn't do it. So he ends up, uh, he's, uh, he's seeing Carl Jung, right? Seeing, he's, he's dealing with psychiatrists at that level, right? Where you're, you're sitting in an office with Carl Jung. And because he wanted Carl to solve his problem. And on page 27, because um, <laughs> Carl Jung has already described, he says, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, are there no, ex are there no exceptions? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are a phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them, okay? So now go back to Roman numeral page 29 in the doctor's opinion, okay? XXIX, and we're gonna hear about the psychic change, okay? And this was what Silkworth was trying to create for Bill, right? Uh, and it starts, we're gonna start at the top here. Um, okay, after they have succumbed, these are the alcoholics, have succumbed to the de desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of recovery, okay? On the other hand, as strange as this may seem, to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And those rules, of course, are the everything that we, we experience in working the 12 steps. And psychic change comes up one more time. It's uh, down to the paragraph. I'm going to skip here. I'm going to skip the one and start with the face with this problem. If a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Remember that more than human power is needed? 
hear that echoed in the A, B, and C we read in the How It Work. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. William Silkworth couldn't do it. 50,000 alcoholics came through Towns Hospital before Bill finally stayed sober. Carl Jung couldn't do it. No human power could do this. So there it is right there. And the psychic change that we hear about from William Silkworth and the vital spiritual experience that we hear about from Carl Jung are one in the same thing. And again, that vital spiritual experience, it's what we experience when we work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That's what happens when we do this here. That's the only thing that has me standing in front of somebody in a Macy's and saying, I'm really sorry I talked to you like that. It's not okay. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. No, it's actually not okay. You're kind to be so gracious, but it's not okay for me to talk to you like that. That's a vital spiritual experience. That's a psychic change. That's a direct result of working the 12 steps. That's what we do here. So uh, that's what we've got with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And now it is... Uh, Question time if we have any questions. Otherwise, we can look at more material in the book. Yes, we have questions. Is it my turn to ask, to say them? Hi, Louise. Hi, Sheila, everybody. All right, here's some questions. What have you found is an ideal amount of time to take someone through the steps? Uh, yeah, again, so... Um, uh, it, it depends. I just take them through the steps as they're outlined in the book. It doesn't take a long time. You saw that, you know, the, the four step. I, I just talked to somebody the other day who said they were, you know, still working on a four step after a year. I can't even imagine being on a four step for a year. But the idea that there's a nice template that's, that's uh, uh, you know, an easy document I can, you know, fire off to somebody. And I've got people in front of me and in the mother program who are saying, no, it, you know, don't, don't let somebody dawdle through this process. Um, it, it, it really just depends on the amount of material somebody ends up with on a four step because I made my eight step list when I took my four step. So the most time actually really happens with the amends. Um, but yeah, it doesn't take a long time because I keep people kind of clipping along on those two. So yeah, it really just depends, Louise. I'm, yeah. Okay, please give the meaning of God makes apples sweet again. Yeah, so it's on page 84. And I would just invite you right if you turn to page 84, right. So because um, you can you can you can uh, spot this right in the paragraph there. So let's look at that, right. So the paragraph starts with this thought brings us to step 10. So this is this is not an overnight matter, it should continue for our lifetime. And what is it it should continue the looking at my behavior throughout the course of the day. I need to stay conscious about my behavior. That's what should continue for a lifetime if I want to stay abstinent and not lose it, okay? Uh, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Again, other than resentment, which is what the fourth step is about, the selfishness, dishonesty, and fear, that's the fourth column of an inventory. So it's saying, Keep watching for that fourth column, okay? And here's, it's gonna give me the steps now. When these crop up, and, and if you've got your book, underline it and draw number one off to the side. We ask God at once to remove them. So God makes apples sweet, God. The first one is G, G-M-A-S, God. And that's the first one. We ask God at once to remove them. Number one, 
we discuss them with someone immediately. Okay, that's number two. So underline the we discuss them with someone immediately, write a number two. God makes man, share it with another man or woman. Do it on an outreach call, right? If you're if it happens at a, it, something happened in a meeting, snag somebody after the meeting, snag, talk to somebody in the parking lot. So we discuss them with someone immediately. Underline that, write a number two. God makes apples, right? So that's got share it with another man or woman. God makes apples and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Underline that and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone and write a number three off to the side. That's the third step in the process. God makes apples, right? Ask God to remove it, share it with another man or woman, make an amends if necessary. If you, you, you have cause for that. And then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Underline that. Draw number four off to the side. God makes apple sweet. Service. And 12-step service doesn't count. Do something else. So big ones for me, I like to, you know, I pick up trash. When I take my dog for a walk, I pick up other uh, animals, uh, dog refuse. If people haven't done that, um, I pick up cigarette butts. You know, I, I've been a volunteer I've uh, at the uh, Heal the Bay. The number one uh, um pollutant uh, in the uh, ocean is uh, cigarette butts. The number one bacterial pollutant in the ocean is dog uh, uh, feces. So I pick those things, that, th those, are, those are kind of services that I like to do. Other services I can do, I mean, I'm not somebody who's prone, you know, I certainly, I certainly don't text in my car, but to not be on my cell phone in the car, even if I'm on Bluetooth, I mean, you know, they did a study through MIT. It's actually, it's not much better to be on Bluetooth than it is to actually just be on the phone. Still a distraction. It's not the same thing as having your radio on. But um, so, you know, sometimes that's the, the, the service I will do, right? Speaking low and kind. Um, you know, I do the dishes. So I always figure my husband should unload the drainer. I mean, that's fair, right? So sometimes doing the services, you know, unloading the drainer, like how generous I am, right? <laughs> you know? So you can just find little services to do there. So that's the GMAS and you know, it's right there on page 84. And now you know what the one, two, three, four. Okay. And that's just my little thing. God makes apples sweet. All right. Would you teach someone 10th step earlier in the process to help when the person is off the beam or would you encourage ordinary outreach calls for that? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't get some the only step that I take out of order and get somebody started on is, is the, uh, uh, the meditation component of the 11th step. I, I always start sponsees right from the beginning on meditation. So otherwise, no, I just would encourage people to do it on outreach calls. Again, if we're working the steps, if, if you and I are doing this together, you're going to be here in a couple months time. It doesn't take a long time. And just because, and, and people have read that we've all just been in a workshop together, right? So people have just heard about this. People can now take this and run with this, even though if, if you're not on step 10, you can know, hey, there's a little process here. I think you'll find it a little bit easier to do once you actually organically get through the first nine steps and then get to that 10th step. But that's the wonderful thing about this book is, um, you know, we can take full advantage of that. So yeah, no, but for, for me, just with people I'm sponsoring, it's like, and we'll get there when we get there, right? Okay, is chronic slippage then due to not practicing the steps enough or is it because I have not really surrendered to God 
and trust that God will help me to recover from compulsive overeating? Yeah, I don't know. That's a question above my pay grade. I do not know. I know for me, what my chronic slipping was about is that I just wasn't ready to feel the feelings. I had too many feelings of uh, trauma having been raised in that home. And I had too much um, uh, serious trauma behind the sexual um, uh, trauma that I'd experienced, the, the molestation that I'd experienced. I just wasn't ready to feel those feelings. But again, remember, what solved my problem for me was being directed to start working the steps, regardless of what was going on with my food. I remember a sponsor saying to me once, I don't care if you've got a pen in your right hand and a Snickers bar in your left hand, you get that four step done. And I remember thinking, well, I wouldn't have a Snickers bar in my left hand. First of all, I'd have a Milky Way. I don't, I don't, I don't eat, I don't like food with nuts in it, right? I don't want anything to slow me down when I'm binging. And um, so, you know, check that. But um, I, uh, I, that, that is that more than anything else, because I wasn't, I, I wasn't ready to stop doing the quantity eating and stop doing the sugar eating until I was done. I was not ready until I was done. But I'm glad that I didn't have to wait until I was done. Because I got to tell you, if I'd had somebody saying to me, you can't work the steps until you're done quantity eating and you're done eating sugar, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have made it. I would have checked out a long time ago. So, yeah. Okay. When you see that you have hurt yourself in a 10th step, how do you deal with that? Do you have an example? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. That is, that's a really beautiful question. And uh, well, you know, there's a couple things, right, that, that show up for me is I'm really kind of struggling with this sleep thing. And, you know, perhaps we're all kind of having some, you know, hard time with this in terms of the, everything that's going on. And, you know, just having gone through the, you know, the trauma of the election and all this stuff. I mean, you know, I tend to be a late night person and an early morning person, which is a bad combination. So one of the things that I'll do is um, I'm trying to, you know, get a loving routine in place, you know, whether that means turning off the, the making sure that I'm no longer dealing with the computer screen after a certain amount of time, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, one of my sponsors says, you know, she must really be up late, though, too, because she says, oh, she doesn't let herself do the computer after 11. Well, that's too late for me. The reality is the reality is I should actually be off my computer no later than eight o'clock. Because if I haven't gotten my 12-step assignments done or I haven't gotten my, my work done, you know, I, I write and I, you know, put, do workshops and things for, you know, business. If I haven't gotten my stuff done before 8 o'clock, then I'm already in trouble. Because what have I been doing for the rest of the, you know, what have I been doing all day long? So um, um, that's, that's one of the, some of the ways, right, that I can, you know, hurt myself. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not kind of the bubble bath type person. I do like candles. So, you know, sometimes I, I oh, I guess I, I lit a candle, but I put it in the bathroom, but, um, you know, so, so sometimes I'll do that. I might light a candle or get, you know, something like that. And, you know, some flowers, sometimes it's a big deal for me. I always kind of go in Trader Joe's and I, you know, I'm lucky because I like carnations. I like yellow. I don't think these are carnations though. I think these are I don't know, those are different ones. I love, you know, I, I, I'm lucky because I like the cheapest flowers. But sometimes I 
kind of want a prettier bouquet, but I'll think, no, no, get the, get the cheaper flowers. So that, you know, part of it might be sometimes, you know, just getting a, you know, a fancier bouquet of flowers. It might be something like that. Um, I talked about this before. I don't always talk about this, but sometimes it's good to say it out loud because I have shared it a couple times and people have said, I've never heard anybody say that. Um, and it's very common with people who've dealt with sexual trauma, but um, I'll pick my face, right? And, um, and I don't do it so much anymore, but, but sometimes, uh, you know, if I find myself and I do that once in a while, I might then, you know, I'll, I'll just um, do a nice uh, face washing that night and just really massage my face. And I'll say loving stuff to myself when I'm doing it. And, um, you know, so it can show up in, in ways like that. And again, it's, you know, I used to work for a psychiatrist. It's very, very common for people who've dealt with sexual trauma, because again, it's just that whole, you know, I stub my toe and it hurts like hell. So let me hit my thumb with a hammer um, to distract myself from the greater pain. But because through this process, I'm learning and feeling more and more comfortable with actually just being present, feeling the pain. And I always love to identify where I feel it in my body and then um, self-soothe, right? So I might put my hand there and I do Qigong. And one of the things we always talk about in Qigong is, you know, do it clockwise first and then counterclockwise is just to comfort. And I always have sponsees do that because especially in these process addictions, we're so prone to, I'm feeling a feeling, so I got to eat. I got to do something right away, right? Is I have to get feel more comfortable with feeling the feelings. So when I feel those feelings, how can I take care of myself and just be very loving to myself? Yeah, so those are some of the ways, yep. How do you work with sponsees once you've taken them through the steps? Do you still connect with them regularly? Yeah, no, I, I always, usually what I do is, um, because there, when I'd started this, there weren't um, a lot of people who were doing this. And again, I don't have a messianic complex. I'm not doing anything that Katie can't do, that Sandy can't do, that Laura can't do, that Louise can't do, Peggy can't do. It's not about that, but I do have my ash. I do have my experience, strength, and hope as a slipper. So I, what I, and my sponsor, this made sense to her as well, is I would take somebody through the steps and then I would say to them, now I would invite you to, to go and get another sponsor. If you want to keep me in, in your sponsor team, if you're somebody who subscribes to that, having more than one sponsor, keep me, you know, keep me in your, 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 uh, on your team. I would love to be a, continue to be a support, but go work the steps with someone else. Go hear what someone else has to say. I've taken you through, right? This is, this is, these are my thoughts. Hear what someone else has to say. Maybe someone wants to take you through the, the, uh, OA workbook, right? The OA 12 and 12 and the OA workbook. Maybe somebody wants to take you through the uh, for today. You know, there, there's, we have that wonderful workbook that corresponds with the, the couple of the different daily readers. So go, go see what someone else has to say. Once in a while, when I finish the steps with somebody, and I'll probably do that with this one sponsee in particular, um, because it's taken us such a long time and we have such a history together, we'll probably work the traditions together. And then we'll finish the traditions and who knows, maybe we'll work the 12 concepts together. Um, so, but usually what I do is I take somebody through the steps and then encourage them to, and, and they already, I already would have started them sponsoring somebody. I get people sponsoring somebody once they've given away a fifth step. And um, so they, they're already gonna be sponsoring somebody. And I, you know, I say, you, you know, you might wanna hear what someone else has to say. Yeah. Do you know of many people working the steps like this I don't see this way in many meetings that I go to. 
Sure. Yeah. No, I, I don't know what anybody does. And, and I do know this, whatever anybody is doing, it'll work. Whatever anybody is doing, it'll work. Because again, remember the A, B, and C? I don't need any particular sponsor to get this. It's, that's just not how it works. It's just not. So whoever is standing in front of me, whatever they're directing me to do, that's the right thing for me to be doing. And, um, and again, I don't, I don't know what anybody does or how anybody works and everybody's doing it right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I remember the, the, the last time at, at some point I got going with somebody new in OA who, uh, and I was, you know, excited to, to be doing something different and, you know, starting with a new sponsor. And she said, oh, we're going to do the OA workbook. And I said, oh, okay. I said, just so you know, I've, I've done that. And I think at the time I'd done it three times. I said, I've done that three times before. And she said, well, isn't it going to be exciting to see what comes up on this fourth time? And I said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you know what? It was amazing. And it's wonderful. It's perfect. Right. So, so it's all, it's all a blessing. Right. So yeah. <laughs> and if you feel called to this and you don't have a sponsor who's doing this with you, read the book yourself, right? Read the book. And unless your sponsor requires you to sponsor people the way you are being sponsored by him or her, right? You can sponsor people this way, you know? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is your definition of a slip versus a relapse? Yeah, okay. So, um, so my sponsor is a woman named Nanette and she's amazing. And her whole thing is that uh, uh, this is a disease that in a way it has nothing to do with food and has everything to do with perfectionism. And she does not believe in starting over. She does not. So I got to tell you, I don't make a lot of distinction between slips and relapses and this and that because I don't start people over and I'm just following my sponsor's lead. I just am. And she actually, I was, it was funny. I can't, I didn't know that she was going to, I'm surprised that she, and I don't know why I'd be surprised. There's nothing, you know, it's working for her. She's been here for 38 years and, um, you know, at a healthy body weight. And she's, you know, she's very petite, you know, she's an Asian woman. She's very petite and very humble and warm and compassionate. She's everything that you, you know, that, that I aspire to here in terms of, of uh, having a, a great example to follow. Um, but, and she has shared this with me privately. And I remember she pulled me aside after Serenity Sunday one day and, and at the end of the meeting, and it just kind of came out of the blue. And she said, Sheila, you know, I've figured it out. And, and, and Nanette and I, you know, I, I first asked her to sponsor me when I ended up here in 1990, 1990 or 91. Two minutes, Sheila. Oh, very good. Thank you. And she said, um, she said, Sheila, I figured out how many, how many days I would have to binge in a row before I would start my abstinence over. And I said, okay, okay. I just thought, where, 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 where'd this come from? But okay. She said, 30 days. It's 30 days. I realized I would have to binge 30 days in a row. And if I got it together on day 29, the whole thing would have to start over again. And she said, and anytime I'm con contemplating starting over, I'm going to wait six months. So I'm going to see if six months down the road, that thing that I thought was this huge issue that would require me to start over was really just a blip. She's kind of teasing, talking tongue in cheek about 30 days in a row. This is not somebody who binges, right? 
She doesn't binge that way. I don't binge that way. I don't know anybody who binges that way who's got time. But, but I get what she's saying. She's basically saying, I think this is about learning to make friends with food. And she also was the first person I ever heard say, I'm a compulsive overeater. Of course, I'm going to still sometimes compulsively overeat. I'm a compulsive overeater. And there's something very liberating about hearing somebody say that. And I know exactly what she's talking about, because this is not like being an alcoholic. If I drink a shot of tequila, game over, day one. It's not the same thing with food. It's just not. And I just follow my sponsor's lead. And I don't have an opinion about what anybody else does. And I'm not going to argue with anybody about what they do. Um, but that's how it works for me. Yeah. And I think that's probably our time. There it is right there. So we are officially now, now we got a break, don't we? Yay. It's break time. Got a 15 minute break. <laughs> I'm going to run to the bathroom. The break is for 15 minutes. We'll resume at 6.15 promptly. Thank you. All right. I just want to do this one more time because there are a lot of people who uh, put this on. This doesn't happen uh, in a vacuum. There's just a lot of people volunteering. So I just want to acknowledge them and read their names out loud again. So volunteering, we have Graham, Diana, Jordan, Gnome, Dave, Sandy, Frank, Lauren, Patty, Mark, Kathy, Katie, Louise, Rod, Morley, and I'm happy to be sharing with you today. And uh, so again, it's, it takes a lot of people to put this kind of thing on. And I would just invite you going forward. There are a lot of opportunities to be of service at the meeting level and uh, in various workshops. Morley is the workshops chair and his very ambitious goal is to try and do a workshop every month. So he just hit the ground running. So um, just don't miss out on the opportunity to, to be of service and don't be concerned if you're not sure about the Zoom stuff. You know, there's great trainings and, and uh, Katie put on a really wonderful workshop a couple of months ago and there are recordings. And so there's, there's just all kinds of support you can get in the fellowship and, um, and to be of service. And, uh, you know, uh, just before we get going on this part of it, I just wanna read that in that, that seventh chapter, which I kept referencing, Right, the it's working with others chapter. There's a great line here at the beginning. In the first couple of, I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs. Practical experience shows, and again, this is chapter seven, working with others. Practic practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. <laughs> and they have 12th suggestion is actually in italics. For, for sure, anytime in the big book they put anything in italics, you definitely want to pay close attention to that. Um, carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Not a bright spot, 
the bright spot. V is the article that's there. It's the bright spot. Well, that's pretty powerful, right? That's a pretty powerful clarification. So um, don't miss out, right? Don't miss out. Um, okay, so I'm 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 I want to tell you a story. I've kind of hinted at a couple of things. First of all, I want to reference this this one story that I I'd ask Morley to remember. This is the the pie love story. So. Um, I, I, I told you my best friends were twins growing up. They were, and, and they were thin, they were really thin. And their mother was Southern and she loved to cook and I loved to eat. So her daughters liked to like to eat. I love to eat. So um, th that was terrific. That was just great. And they had the kind of family and the kind of life that was exactly the opposite of mine, completely different. And um and I loved spending a lot of time at, at their house, anything to, to keep me away from my house. But there was just a lot of love there. It was everything that, a, that, that I imagined a family was supposed to be and mine was not. But um, those girls grew up. And again, w once I got to high school, I was still struggling with my weight. And I had, I had been listening to my father communicate the things he was communicating to me. And I believed him and we're kind of getting casual here. So I'm actually going to kind of get down a little yoga pose, get off the couch here. Let's see if this will pop my back a little bit. But um, I, I absolutely wanted the kind of life that they had. And I had been believing my father as he was saying the kind of things that he was saying. He had the overweight daughters, didn't like it. And it landed particularly hard for me, the stuff he was saying, because I heard it the most from him. And I believed him. So I got to high school. And despite the fact I had these, these friends who were, were thin, I couldn't be a cheerleader anymore. I'd gotten too overweight for that. But um, I dropped those friends. And the thing about friends are, if you stop returning phone calls, or you stop showing up, they eventually stop calling. So we drifted away. And it was just so sad, because as time, you know, we'd been friends since kindergarten. And, uh, you know, when, when we grew up, and they got married, you know, they were young women who got married in their 20s. I didn't, I got married in my 40s. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, I wasn't in their wedding or anything because we the friendship was over. And the friendship was over because I had believed what my father had told me and decided I had no value because I was overweight. And I checked out on the friendship. Uh, again, yet another tragedy of alcoholism or another tragedy of compulsive overeating, right? That ism. And uh, at any rate, I, um, I'd been not estranged so much, but we just, our lives had gone in, in different directions and we just weren't really friends so much anymore. And um, my sister had wandered into, because this, this girl, one of the twins, the one I was the closest to, was a girl named Linda, she had started a pie shop in, in DeWitt, Michigan. I'm from Lansing and DeWitt's right outside Lansing. My sister lives there. And, um, and as was par for the course, because, you know, everything, she kind of seemed like she has lived under a, you know, she just lived a really charmed life, you know, everything kind of, it seems like it worked out well for her. And she started this pie store and it became, you know, very well known. And she started entering pie contests. And there are, just like there are dog shows, you know, there's Westminster, there are pie contests, like who knew? Um, 
and she uh, she entered this pie contest and the I don't I don't know however long it was a couple of years but she eventually won best in show you know they have different categories like best fruit pie best cream pie you know whatever I don't know and um, she won a couple of those but then eventually you know on year three or year four she won best in show so she literally had a pie that was the best pie in the world and you know pie started in the United States and so you know there are some people who would say well it would be the best in the world you know nobody makes pie like an American. But, um, and she had won this contest. And my husband and I were going to be going home to Michigan. And I, uh, my sister had wandered into that pie store like six months before. And my friend Linda was in there and she's, you know, hey, how you doing with my sister? And, and um, Linda asks about me and my sister said that, you know, she lives in, she's a writer. She lives in Los Angeles. And Linda ended up revealing that she wanted to do a television show. She wanted to do a reality show out of her pie shop. And my sister said, well, you should be in touch with Sheila. And Linda said, I want to do that. So we got reconnected. And um, uh, so Linda and I are in this conversation and we determined that, yeah, we're going to work on this reality show together. Out of, based out of the out of the pie shop and um and there was there's another component to it but that's not you know it's not an important part of the story necessarily but um Neil, linda also dealt with some health issues so we we're going to kind of be combining that right the health issues and 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 you know what it's like to run a pie shop a very successful pie shop and it was very successful i mean she would have it wouldn't be unusual that because um, her pies were available, you could get them through Williams Sonoma or whatever. And then, but there would be instances where uh, people would would jump in their car in in New England and they would drive for you know twenty hours straight to get to this little pie shop in Dewitt, Michigan, because they wanted to have this pie in the shop, right? And listen to the music, and she listens to a lot of. Uh, music from the 40s and things like that and 50s and Doris Day and the pink linoleum floor and the girls all you know the women behind the counter all wear pearls while they're serving you pie I mean it's just it's very old school and um, uh, so I was coming home it, it was six months after we'd been in these conversations and we're going to do a little pre-production in this in this uh, bakery for this show that we're going to be putting together. And um, I've been abstinent at this point for nine years. And I had been off sugar at that point for, you know, five or six years. And um, I am there with my husband and my husband is, uh, has always been a good sport. You know, he would always try things for me. Anytime we would go somewhere and I couldn't have something, I would always say to my husband, oh, will you you know, will you, will you try this for me? And he would always try it for me. And then I, he, he takes the first bite and I say, am I missing anything? And he would say, no, baby, you're not missing a thing. You're not, don't worry. You're not missing a thing. He would always do that. And I would feel fine, right? Cause I'm not missing anything because he told me. So we're in this pie shop and my husband orders a piece of this pie, this award-winning, nationally award-winning pie. And she always has really cute little names for these pies and stuff. And it was like cherry, cherry, berry, cherry, you know, something like that. Because it's got like four different kinds of cherries in it and berries and you name it. And so my husband orders a piece of this pie and 
he takes a bite and I said, okay, so how is it? I'm not missing anything, am I? Right? And he pauses and he said, well, it is really good, Sheila. And I thought, oh no, wrong answer, wrong answer. No, no, no. And I, you know, I, all of a sudden I have to get out of this pie shop as quickly as possible because I just, I, 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 I want to, I, I, I want to, I want one of everything. I, I just, I, it's just insane. I cannot believe, I mean, I, and plus I have to cook up the punishment plan because clearly he needs to be punished for that answer. So, you know, I got to work on that material. So I just think, I just, I can't believe that that was the answer. I, I, as God is my, in the 20 years we'd been together at that point, I'd never heard that answer or 15 years, I guess. I'd never, he'd never given that kind of an answer. I just couldn't believe it. I could only imagine how good this must be for him to give that kind of an answer. So I go outside and I remember it was November and I had forgotten to bring my gloves home. So I'm, you know, my hands are so cold and I, this, I, I didn't have a smartphone yet. I had a flip phone. And I remember I'm, you know, kind of flipping open this phone because I've just got to, I, I just got to start making outreach calls. Because remember, I have a sponsor who's, already, who's got me making outreach calls. That's what I do. It's, it's part of what she has me do on a regular basis. I have to make these calls. And so I'm just prepared. I'm just, you know, and I'm, and, and, and I, I, and that one of the sponsor who had me making those calls, I remember she would never let me program her number into my phone. She would always say, no, I want you to, to dial it so that if you ever end up in a precarious place and you don't have your phone and you need to lean into somebody else's phone, use someone else's phone, um, I want you to know my number. So I, I just start, but I, but, you know, so I tried to dial her, can't reach her. And I just start dialing phone numbers and I can't reach anybody, cannot reach anybody. And it's so cold. And I just, I can still look down and I can see my, I can see the pants I'm wearing. I can see, just see it. And I'm just so cold and I'm just dialing numbers because I got to reach somebody because I just, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, 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 I want a piece of this pie. Like I, you, you know, want to, want to take another breath. I mean, I just, I cannot believe it. I finally reached someone and this is somebody I didn't talk to very often. I'm, you know, kind of going down the list. Her name's Wendy. She answers the phone. And I said, Wendy, I said, it's Sheila uh, calling from program, uh, making an outreach call. It's really kind of urgent. Do you have a minute? She said, I do. What's going on? And I said, I'm in Michigan and um, I'm outside uh, a bakery and I, you know, the particulars don't even matter. I'm just telling you, I, I, I really want to get, it's this famous pie shop and I, I've heard it's really good. And my husband told me and he, you know, he will be punished later, but I mean, I just, I got to have a piece of this pie and I just, I want to, I just wanted to make an outreach call because I figured I should probably call and I can't reach any of my sponsors. And I figured I just try, should try and reach somebody live and speak to somebody and say it out loud before I, before I eat this pie. I just thought I should do that. So I reached you. She said, okay, she said, um, Sheila, you can do whatever you want to do. You can do whatever you want to do. You're, you're 2,000 miles from Los Angeles. You can do whatever you want to do. You can have a piece of the pie. You don't have to tell anybody. You can come back and... And if anybody asks, you can lie about it. You don't have to, you don't have to tell any of us. You don't have to, you don't have to, you can do whatever you want. 
But I'm just telling you, it's not the pie you want. It's the love. So why don't you go back in and get what it is you really want, which is the love. And I hung up, thanked her, and I hung up. And before I went in, I realized a few things. One, I don't like pie. I don't, I don't like pie. I have no idea why 20 years before I ate half of an apple pie in that babysitting job. But I don't like pie. And if I was going to eat pie, like if I had to under duress, I wouldn't eat a fruit pie. I might eat a cream pie. And I probably wouldn't eat the crust. I would eat the, the filling. But I'm not going to eat a fruit pie. And I'm certainly not going to fool around with the crust. And I don't even like pie. So I thought about that. The other thing I thought about is there is some stuff in there I like, right? She's got frosted cupcakes. I'm pretty good with frosting. and I don't like cupcakes so much, but I can scrape the frosting off. I like that kind of thing. But if I was going to, and she does have like a toffee caramel type pie that that sounds highly doable but i don't want a piece of anything i don't i don't want a piece of it i want a whole pie and i don't want a whole pie while a bunch of people are around in a well-lit bakery with a pink linoleum floor i'd like a a dark tv room or a den right with a table set up right in front of the tv coffee uh, the tv table and a light switch dimmer switch uh, a netflix or an hbo subscription right and turn turn the turn the light out and shut the door on your way out whoever you are it just delivered my pie to me <laughs> that I could potentially handle, but I don't, I don't want a piece of things. And I don't want to do it with other people around. I don't want any of that. And it was wild because while I was out there making the calls, there was a woman inside and she was drinking a cup of tea and she had the teacup in her right hand and she had the fork. She must've been left-handed. She had the fork I think it was in her left hand. I think she, I think that's how it went. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But I know that she was holding the teacup and she was holding and she had a bite of pie on the fork and she was holding it aloft. And I remember thinking, put it in your mouth. Put the put the put the bite of pie in your mouth. Set the teacup down. Stop fooling around with the tea. If if nothing else, grab a second fork right? 
and do this, but don't, but, 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 but you got to bite a pie on your fork, put that fork in your mouth. What are you doing? Talking, stop talking, start eating. And I was thinking, you know, staring at her as I was making these calls before I got this information about go back in and get the love. So then I realized I don't like pie. I don't want a piece of anything. And I don't want to do it around a bunch of people. And I realized that I do want the love. And food has never given me love. It's distracted me from feeling unloved. But it's never given me the love. And I want the love. I realized that. And so I went back in and I got the love. I didn't have the pie. I've never had that pie. The show didn't end up, we didn't get it, end up getting it off the ground, but I've never had that pie. I've never had any of her pies. I've had, you know, ate some of the stuff when I was growing up and her mom used to make it and she has some of her mom's pie recipes, but I've never eaten any of her things. And um, it all happened because I had a routine something that I was doing based on sponsor direction, which involved making outreach calls on a daily basis and uh, following direction and getting very clear about being committed to, to, to honesty, right? I wasn't, it was never gonna be an option that I was gonna lie about eating something there and not tell anybody the truth. That, that wasn't gonna happen. I knew that definitely wasn't gonna happen. But um, it was all just a direct result of following, following sponsor direction. And it was there for me. That routine was really there for me when I needed it. And I'm so grateful for that. So um, that's what I would throw out to you, right? It's not the food you want. It's the love. You're just, center, you're just settling for the food. We settle for the food instead of really going after what we really want, which is the love. So that's, that's that story. I wanted to tell you that one. Here's another one. And I'm sorry, I know I'm kind of getting wiggle wormy here. My, my back's kind of getting a little tweaky. So don't mind me. I'm just trying to adjust here a little bit. And I actually probably, I'm going to just take this opportunity. I'm going to just cut my video here for a minute, just so I can keep talking, but I can turn around and I can just start moving a little bit, which will let me get my back a little bit relaxed. And I want to tell you this story. And this is a story that uh, one of my sponsees, and he's a, a sponsee from, from uh, the mother program, right? From Alcoholics Anonymous. And he lets me tell people this story. And this is an amazing step nine story. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Oh, you, you couldn't even write something like this. This kind of thing is only possible in uh, through working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So um, uh, this is a guy who is a, he's a, uh, you, you know, for people who are into rock music, you know this guy. He's a famous musician, famous guitarist. And he had had uh, sobriety. And at some point he lost it and he had been trying to get sober again for a long time. And he, um, he wandered into my home 
AA meeting, that Thursday morning meeting I referenced, that 6.45 a.m. meeting. And it was actually kind of a special day because I was going to be celebrating my uh, AA birthday. And it was, um, uh, I don't know if I, it, that was actually November, I think it was. It was actually November 27th, which is my AA birthday, Jimi Hendrix's birthday. Um, it was a great sobriety birthday. And this guy wanders in and ends up revealing that he's, you know, he's, he's somebody who's been struggling to stay sober. And I'm talking to him before the meeting. And I said, well, I'd be happy to, to sponsor you and help you out. And he said, really? And I said, really, let's do it. Let's get, let's get going. So, um, so we start working the steps and he ends up revealing, right? I, I think it came out even before he did his four step, but he ends up revealing that he has a history of having molested girls, young girls, including he had a couple of daughters. And let's just give him a name. Let's just call him, let's just call him John. And um, he has two daughters and he molested both of them. And the one daughter has kind of reconciled it. She's just, you know, she's, she's, she doesn't really have a relationship with him, but she doesn't hate him. And the other one just hates him. And let's just call her Gina. So she just hates him. She just absolutely hates him and wants nothing to do with him. And we, he does his four step and I realized, and I'd already talked with my sponsor about this and, and, and it, I'd already sponsored somebody in program, a guy in program who had, had, had molested, not serially. And what this guy had indicated, this, this John had indicated that he had molested a number of girls. And so I, I kind of knew what was coming down the pike and I was fine with it. And my sponsor said, you know, are you sure? And I said, yeah, no, I'm sure. So I listened to his fifth step and it took us three days, took me, you know, three days to, to listen to this fifth step. And they weren't eight hour days, but I mean, I, you know, a couple of hours and uh, we did it. We would always stay for a couple of hours after the meeting on Thursday morning. And it wasn't until the third Thursday that we'd finished it. And um, sure enough, you know, he, I hear the stuff on his four step and he had, he'd molested, you know, I guess about 20 women, young girls. And he'd started when he was young and he had also been molested himself as a child, um, which again, those were all kind of things I got in touch with as I was thinking about Lenny and Marvin who had molested me. I realized that people who feel good about themselves don't molest little girls. So I'd already had this awareness. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, 20 years, 30 years later, almost somebody is sitting in front of me and actually revealing this very thing, right? This is how he ended up in a situation where he was um, somebody who, who uh, molested someone because he'd experienced that trauma himself. So um, I listen to the fist up and we get to the, to the eighth step a couple of weeks later. And, you know, I made my, my eight step list when I took my four step. So the same was true for John. And so we have all the names of the people that he'd done the damage to, including the, the names of the, the girls and including his, his uh, two daughters. 
And um, and I think he'd made an amends attempt at some point with the one daughter. And she was like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever, F- fine. And she just didn't really want anything to do with him. But she wasn't angry. She didn't, and the other girl just hated him. She didn't want to be contacted by him. She wanted nothing to do with him. She had two children. So he had two grandkids that he had never been in touch with and a daughter that just wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. So he... Uh, And it was really powerful for him to read that fifth step and hear a woman see him with the eyes of love, right? And I would always hug him after we, after we finished the, you know, that portion of the, the fifth step. And it was really valuable. It, 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 he, he told me how much it meant to him. And he told me quite a bit later how much it meant to him. But at the time he was just saying, it just was so powerful for him to have that experience to be so loved and accepted by someone who, a woman who had been molested herself, who could hear him share these stories about having molested these women. And, um, you know, my sponsor would always check in with me at night. She and I always talk in the morning, but she would check in with me at night after I would have listened to this and she would say, are you doing okay? And I'd say, I'm doing fine. I'm just seeing him with the eyes of love everything that's possible and doing exactly what we get directed to do here. And she said, okay. And um, now these names are on an eight step list and it's time to make amends. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but you never make amends. If you are somebody who created a traumatic experience for somebody around sex and sexuality you don't ever you don't ever approach those people and apologize and make amends you don't ever do that you've lost the right to do that and again remember i'd shared with you that i'd worked for a psychiatrist for five years and he said yeah no you wouldn't ever do that you would never do that because you could re-traumatize somebody all over again if if somebody has molested someone and and a victim wants to show up in front of somebody and they want to give him the business you know that that's one thing but the 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 victimizer never shows up to make amends to the victim you you've lost that right for contact so um so he knows he's not going to be approaching any of these women including and especially his daughter uh, the the one who was really angry. That's kind of the 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 one that I'm focusing on here. Because the other one, I don't even. Yeah, she she was just complete with him, and she was fine, and she just didn't pay much attention to him. But the other one just hated him, wanted nothing to do with him. And so what I had him do is I had him write letters, and there are there are four parts to these amends letters, and I always have people do amends the same way. So four parts to the letter. Um, and let's just do it, let's say, okay, so let me do it as I'm writing the letter, if I were writing the letter that I wrote to Marvin. Dear Marvin, I forgive you for having molested me when I was a kid. That's the first communication. I forgive you for having molested me, for having hurt me, done the horrible thing, right? Whatever it is, I forgive you for the horrible thing you did. Please forget, second part, please forgive me for not having forgiven you 
for what you did. Because that was my part. That's my part. And remember, I've already established that and figured that out in the fourth column of the inventory. So please forgive me for not forgiving you for having molested me. And then my sponsor had directed me. She said, write something nice about Marvin. Because we are all more than our worst moments. All of us. We're all more. We're all more than our worst moments. So write something nice about Marvin. And finally, she said, sign off the letter as high as you can go. And there's nothing higher than love. But if you don't want to sign off, love Sheila. Sign sincerely or cheers or best. Right? She said, but sign off as high as you can go. So I directed him to write letters and I said, you're not going to send these letters to these women. You're not going to read these letters to them, but you're going to read them to me. And then we're going to do something different and additional with, in reference to the, the situation with your daughter, Gina. So he reads all the letters, right, from the amends and these, these letters, these kind of what seem like almost stock letters that he's writing to these women. And again, he's just reading them to me. They're not going to go anywhere else. And then after he reads the, the letter to his daughter to me, and I said, now what I want you to do is I said, I want you to write another letter to Gina, but I want you to write the letter that you really would love to, to write. In an ideal world, if you knew she was going to listen to you and hear you out and not run out of the room, what is it you'd want to say to her? I want you to write that letter. And he did. And he read it to me. And it was really beautiful. It's a beautiful letter. Beautiful, beautiful. And I said, okay, now what I want you to do is I said, I want you to get a card, get a beautiful card. Maybe you go to Papyrus and get a really beautiful card. And I want you to copy what you've written in this letter that you wrote to me. And I want you to copy it into this, this card. And once you've done that, bring it to the meeting and read it to me. And I said, and oh, put a stamp on the envelope. He said, am I going to mail it to her? I said, no. You're not doing anything like that. You're just following direction. You're just putting a stamp on an envelope and bringing me the, the card where you've written this letter. You transcribed this, this letter into this card. So he does, he reads it to me and it's really beautiful and it's very emotional for him. And I said, okay, now I want you to seal it up and I want you to sign your name across the envelope on the front where you've sealed it. And on the front of the envelope, I want you to address it, write your daughter's first name and her last name as though you were sending it to her and then write care of and write your name, care of John Smith, let's call him. And I said, and put your address here. And then in the return address, also put your address there, John Smith with your address. And he's got a stamp on the envelope. So he does that. And I said, now what I want you to do is you're going to mail it. And are you with me? So he's sending it to his daughter, but it's coming care of him to his address from him, from his address. So she's not coming anywhere near it. 
but he's sending this this letter through the the postal service through USPS and I said and when it comes back to you I want you to let me know bring it to the meeting so the next week he comes and he brings the letter and it's postmarked it's been mailed to him and I said now what I want you to do is I want you to put it in your god box and he has a god box right we put together I imagine most of you probably have god boxes and you can do you can make a god box easy you can decorate a tissue box you can you know decorate a cigar box you can you know get as 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 uh, ornate with it as you want right but it's just something that once i put it in there it's no longer mine to think about it belongs to god i've given it to god so he follows the direction and he puts the letter in the box and he said i'm not going to give it to her am i and i said no you're you're never going to give this letter to your daughter ever unless unless she ever contacts you and ends up in a conversation that she initiates about what you did to her then you can apologize and you can give her the letter he said well that's never going to happen i said okay well then it never happens but for now it's just it's found a home in your god box so that's what it's going to do is it's going to sit there so he says okay so about two years, two years later, because he, he didn't keep attending our meeting, at least not regularly. I hadn't seen him in a while and I get a phone call from him, panicked phone call, call me back, please call me back, call me back. So I call him back. And again, we'd completed the steps. He was staying sober. And he said, Gina called me. She called me and left a message. What do I do? And I said, call her back. He said, what if she wants to see me? What do I do? I said, don't you want to see her? And he said, yeah, but I don't know what to do. I said, show up and see her, find out, follow the breadcrumbs, see what happens. I said, call me afterwards and tell me what happens. So he calls me 15 minutes later and he said, she wants to go to lunch. She wants to see me go to lunch. What do I do? I said, take her to lunch. Are you not getting the theme here? Take her to lunch. So he figures out, you know, where she lives. And I said, take her to the nicest place in town. And um, he takes her to lunch. And I said, and, and after, you, after you, you do this, I want you to call me afterwards. And he said, well, do I bring the letter? Do I give her the letter? And I said, no, don't you remember the rules? When do you get to give her the letter? He said, I would only get to give her the letter if she brings it up and acknowledges what happened. I can apologize and I can give her the letter. And I said, right. What's the another next part of the rule? And he said, if she slaps my face once, it's okay. But nobody, I don't have to let anybody hit me a second time, but I can't hit her. But I can say, I'm not, I, I, that, that, you know, I can't keep this up. I'm sorry for what I did to you. I understand, but I can't, right? So he knew the routine. He knew, he knew, he had all the information. And so I said, but bring the letter, have it with you. And you know, what is the only circumstance where you would get to give her this letter? I said, call me afterwards. So six, seven hours later, I get a phone call from him and he's just sobbing on the phone, tears of joy. And he said, you're never going to believe it. He said, um, he said, she actually got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous a year ago. And she 
wanted to see me and she wanted to tell me that she forgives me for my having molested her and that she loves me and she just wanted me to know that. And I said, and what did you do? He said, well, you told me if she brought it up that I could apologize to her and I could give her the letter. And I said, yes, I did. Is that what you did? And he said, I did. And he said, and she just burst into tears when she opened the letter. And he said, and I of course burst into tears, keeping in mind, she's looking at a letter that had been written two years before with a postmark on it. And he had signed across the envelope. So she knew that this had been waiting for her. He told her it had been sitting in his God box. And he now has continued, this was seven, eight years ago. He's continued to, or five, six years ago. He's continued to have a relationship with this daughter. She's since had another child. He has three grandchildren. There is nothing he loves more than sitting and reading with his grandchildren. This is, you know, somebody who's been all over the world, you know, fans, arenas, hotels, groupies, you name it. And um, there is nothing that he loves more than the idea that he gets to sit and read to his grandchildren. And he's teaching the oldest one how to play guitar. Got that one, a little mini guitar. And this all got birth out of the steps as they're outlined uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, taking loving sponsor direction. And um, it's just, it's just the most amazing story, right? And it all is a result of everything that we do here. And um, I just love, I love that story. And I love, um, I love it. I love everything that we, uh, that we do here. I do. I just, I love it all. And um, so that's, that's that story. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you one more story. So, and this is, this is my story. And um, um, so remember I told you that I was the, um, I was the youngest in my family and I'm the most like my mother and looked the most like her, sounded the most like her, everything. We both loved to sing. We both had good voices. Um, we wore makeup, perfume, everything. And she didn't get along with her mother at all. I didn't get along with my mother and my mother named me after her mother. Okay. So um, my mother was the oldest in her family and her mother, my grandmother was valedictorian of her class. This was the early 20th century. And my grandmother, I just learned this about 15 years ago. My grandmother, well, it was longer than that, I guess. My grandmother wanted to be a writer. I didn't, and I am a writer. I didn't know that. I had no idea. And um, my grandmother had a huge presence in our family. She was truly the matriarch, right? A very no-nonsense matriarch in our family. 
and my grandfather, her ex-husband, because she had divorced him, he was a violent alcoholic. Again, both my parents came from alcoholic homes. And my father's alcoholic father was kind of a passive aggressive type alcoholic. My maternal grandfather was a horrendously violent, violent alcoholic. He wasn't even just a he wasn't even just a child beater. He was a beater upper. And my mother and her brother, two years younger, got the worst of it. And 10 years later, there was another boy who came and he got it really bad as well. And then two years after them, there was a, the final child, the fourth child was a daughter. And um, again, the, the three oldest kids really experienced my violent grandfather, almost maniacally violent. And I heard stories about um, you know, my mother would be in the bathtub and she was 15 years old and her father would come in and he would belt her. And it, it would be a good belting if she was getting it with the leather part of the belt and not the buckle. I mean, he was just, he was really a troubled, troubled alcoholic, violent alcoholic. And, um, um, and my, my mother, again, ended up with, in because she was, my grandmother got pregnant in her senior year, and despite the fact she wanted to go to college, all of those dreams went by the wayside when she found out she was pregnant um, with my mother and my, my grandfather. And she had had a nice boyfriend. She told me, you know, she had a nice boyfriend in high school, and she dropped him to marry my grandpa. And... Um, when she married him, my grandpa's mother ended up saying to her, oh, you stupid, stupid girl. That's what she was saying to my grandmother who had just married her son. Boy, did you screw up. You made a really big mistake. And uh, my mother, again, there was, uh, this is kind of you know, part of the problem from an alcoholic family. Uh, you know, you never know who's got the straight story, but what my mother said is that my grandfather never beat uh, his, his wife. That is, he never beat my grandmother, but he only beat the children. That's what my mother said. And so she ended up, my mother ended up so angry at her mother, kind of wondering like, why are you letting him do this to us type of thing. And which probably is what fueled the problem that the two of them had. And again, my grandmother got pregnant in her senior year and all of a sudden her dreams of a better life went by the wayside. She was pregnant. She was pregnant with my mother. So that was probably her problem with my mother as though it was my mother's fault, right? Not, but, and then my mother had four kids and she was finally starting to get a sense that her life might begin to be her own again. And all of a sudden she's pregnant again with me, probably an unplanned pregnancy. I feel pretty safe saying my parents died young in their sixties. So I don't know. There's nobody in my family who would have that information now, but my mother 
had that same animosity toward me as her mother had had toward her. And again, so we were just, you know, you know, a line of women who are just not getting along. And um, my mother's youngest sister, so there were two boys, two girls, and the youngest child was my aunt. And she had gotten, uh, she got diagnosed with MS when she was, I don't know, I wanted to say that age. I think she was older. I want to say 20, I think. And this was in the 60s, I guess. And she, um, she was married and she was pregnant and her husband left her when he found out and she had the baby, a baby boy and raised him. And she had a really hard run with MS and went blind. I think her, her, her sight came back, but she was very labored with her walking and things. And, and she ended up dying of MS complications and her child, her son was five years old. And my grandmother, my namesake, raised that child. So it was a big deal in our family. So MS had a big, had a big presence in our family because of this five-year-old son that my grandmother was raising. So, and we have other autoimmune issues in my family. There's diabetes, etc. And my oldest brother who had diabetes, my grandfather, my mother's father also had diabetes. And my brother for years, for 20 years before he died, he got diagnosed at 15 and he died uh, 20 years later. He blamed my mother for most of his life that as though it was her fault, right? That, that he was related to her and related to her father and he had diabetes. I mean, just kind of the irrationality. This is the pathology of alcoholism, right? This kind of insanity, this crazy thinking. And um, my mother listened to that for a lifetime, listened to my brother blame her, despite the fact my brother never took responsibility for his life. He smoked cigarettes, he smoked pot, he ate unbelievable amounts of sugar because in addition to his diabetes, like me and like my mother, <laughs> same thing, um, who had the diabetes, ate unbelievable amounts of sugar. So he did all these things that were making his health worse, but he continued to stand in that victim role and blame my mother for what had, had happened to him, right? That he'd ended up with this diagnosis. So my mother was just kind of shell-shocked by that. And then my, my, uh, it was just, you know, my brother had died. It was just, you know, it was all just very sad thing. So I ended up getting diagnosed with MS in 1994. And at the time I was working for a, that psychiatrist that I've referenced and talked about. And the irony is, so my aunt would have had died of MS complications like 20 years before. 
and I was working for this psychiatrist. I was nannying um, in, in this family. And the mother was very debilitated with MS. As a matter of fact, when I took that job that I had for five years while I was paying off undergrad student loans, and, um, and it was nice because I'd before I'd been doing stuff with celebrities and traveling and stuff, and this was fun, kind of just settling in with kind of a normal type family. And I was told in the job that um, I, it wasn't even like I was really going to be a nanny. You're, you're really going to be kind of a substitute mother because the, his, his wife, the, the children's mother, couldn't, she, she was starting to lose it cognitively. She was starting, and she was a brilliant woman, had three graduate degrees. And she was, you know, spoke four or five languages. I mean, again, just a brilliant woman. And she was starting to, to have the breakdown. And, um, and I, I already had a lot of fear based on what I'd experienced in my home with, with my aunt. I mean, not in my home, but in my family, losing my aunt and then being in this job situation. And a year after I ended up in that job situation, I get diagnosed with MS. And bravo for life's little ironies. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't run, you know, genetically, and it doesn't, you know, it's nothing you can you can catch from anybody. It's nothing like that. So again, it was just bravo for life's little ironies. And I get diagnosed, and this psychiatrist that I'm working for, he's he's a brilliant, brilliant man, and he's a very elite psychiatrist, and had a treatment center at one point, and you know, saw a lot of uh, people, studio heads, stuff like that. Again, just a brilliant, brilliant man. He was also, you know, much like William Silkworth, who was also both a neurologist and a psychiatrist. That was the same thing that was true of, um, of this psychiatrist I was working for. He was both a neurologist and he was a psychiatrist. And um, I, got, I get diagnosed and I end up revealing to him that I'm not going to tell my parents. I was 30 years old, I'm 57 now, and I wasn't going to tell my parents about the diagnosis. And he said, oh, Sheila, he said, you, you got to tell your parents. And I said, no, no, I don't. You, you don't understand. I, I, uh, my parents aren't going to have any response to it. And I can't take that on top of, on top of all this. I just, I can't take it. It hurts too much. And he said, no, Sheila, he said, you're, you're being too hard on your, on your, on your family. You're, you're being too hard on your parents. It's, it's not going to go like that. I promise you. He said, I can tell you as a father. I said, no, I, I, I hear you. I hear you, but I'm just telling you that's not how it works in my family. And I know how this is going to go. And I can't take that on top of this. I can't, I can't take this on top of what already hurts too much. And I just am kind of just feel like I got the fuzzy end of the lollipop, you know? Like, how did I land this, right? I'm an alcoholic, I'm an Al-Anon, I grew up in an alcoholic home, I got molested, and now I, I, I have an, a, an autoimmune, I've got an MS diagnosis. You know, how, how did I get here? And um, he said, Sheila, I, I, I want you to know I really hear you, but I'm just telling you, you really need to tell your parents. And I said, let's just call him Dr. Smith. And I said, Dr. Smith, with all due respect, most due respect, I hear you, 
I thank you for your concern and what you're saying, but this is none of your business and I'm not going to tell my parents. And I don't want to talk about this anymore. So he said, okay. Now, I must have really been in shock when I got this diagnosis because I ended up calling my parents and this was before cell phones. You know, this was, you know, or at least before I had a cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone in 1994. And I called my parents from, again, I'm working as a nanny, working out of their home. And I call from their home line. And I call my parents and I just say, I didn't tell them what it was about. But again, this was before I had the conversation with the doctor. But I, I called them as soon as I came back from the MRI and then got notified about the MRI. And I, I just said, I, you know, it, it's Sheila. I, I you know, I, I just, I wanted to reach out. I guess I need to talk to you guys. And this was, after I left that message, it was within an hour or two, I thought, well, I'm not gonna tell my parents. I don't wanna tell them. I, what was I thinking? I must, this is crazy. I don't know what I was thinking when I called them. And that was when I then had the conversation with the doctor and he was saying, you need to tell your parents. And I said, basically, I'm not going to mind your own business. But my mother got home and she got that message and she, you know, whatever number you used to dial to call back because I hadn't left the, the number. And she calls back and the woman, the mother in this nanny situation that I'm in, answers the phone and she's again experiencing cognitive issues over time with her MS and she identifies herself and my mom identifies herself and this woman this wife this let's just call her Mrs. Smith says Sheila got diagnosed with MS today and hangs up so I didn't know about this before I'd had this conversation with the doctor and I only put two and two together when my mother reaches out to me later. And I'm just furious because I've, this information, which was mine has gotten revealed to my parents. And, um, and I said some, you know, juicy bratty things to, to the, you know, to the mother and, you know, and then I have to make amends because that wasn't appropriate to talk to a boss like that. And it certainly wasn't appropriate to talk to someone who was, you know, kind of struggling the way she did. And, you know, she, you know, it was anyway, you know, I'd made a mistake and needed to make amends. And I've learned how to do that here. So I did that. So I get on the phone with my parents. So now I've, I've known I've had the diagnosis for about 30 hours and I get on the phone with my parents both my parents on two different extensions. And I'm explaining about, you know, how I got diagnosed behind optic neuritis and yeah, this happened. And, you know, I'm going to be seeing this doctor at UCLA, et cetera. And I, you know, work for this family. I'm, you know, nannying for this family because again, I didn't talk to my parents very often. I talked to my parents twice a year. I would call my, my parents on, and I'll just talk about this in reference to my mother, but I did the same thing with my dad. But I would call on Christmas, 
and I would call on her birthday. So my mother's birthday is in February and my dad's uh, birthday is in July, but that's irrelevant. I'm just talking about my mother here now and Christmas is Christmas. But I only called them twice a year because I didn't, we just didn't have that kind of a relationship. I hadn't been, I didn't have a relationship with them, a healthy relationship in childhood and it hadn't gotten better and I didn't know how to fix it. And I just, it was just too painful. So I just didn't, you know, I just didn't have a relationship with them. So we have this conversation um, and they didn't call me either, by the way. So we have the conversation, we get off the phone. It's like March 2nd, 1994. And I never hear from, for the next seven years, I never heard from either of my parents. I never heard from anybody in my family. Nobody in my family ever called me and spoke to me and asked how I was doing. Nobody ever did. Nobody ever inquired about my health. Never happened. The very thing that I was so frightened was going to happen, which is why I didn't want my parents to know, was actually happening. And then I, it was 2001 or two. And, and at the time I was told that I wasn't going to have any appreciable problems with MS. And the, again, this world's foremost researcher on MS at UCLA said he could tell that based on the, you know, these scars and where they, you know, the lesions, where they showed up on the brain, et cetera, et cetera, right. You know, stuff that's not that important or relevant here, but that, you know, I, I didn't, that, that didn't mean anything. I was still scared as hell. And I knew I was on my own. I just knew I didn't have a family to, to depend on or lean into. And so um, I start now, in 2001, I start kind of having health issues, health problems with this, to the point where I'm going to have to get on one of these major medications. And I end up going to the, the MS Society, and I tell the social worker this because I have to, my doctor had retired and I didn't have a neurologist. I wasn't seeing anyone because I wasn't having any issues and I need to get some information. I need to get a neurologist. And I just wanted to sit down and talk with somebody from the MS society. And I told the social worker this from the MS society, this is either 2001 or 2002. It was 2002, actually summer of 2002. And I got to tell you, you have to work really hard to shock the shit out of a social worker. You just do. They just, they've heard a lot of stories and you just, you have to work really hard to shock them. But I remember this woman just sitting there like this. When I told her that I'd gotten this diagnosis and nobody in my family had ever called me and inquired about my health. And, and the, the two times a year that I would talk to my parents, right? They never would ask about my health. My dad might once in a while would say, how's your health? But they didn't ask any specific questions, and my mother never would, despite the fact her sister had died 20 years ago of MS complications, and her, her uh, nephew was raised by my grandmother. My mother would never ask about my health, and I'm telling this social worker, and she just can't believe it. She actually, she, she, she actually said, I've, I've never heard anything like that. I just can't. I, I'm so sorry. I, I just can't believe it. And I just, you know, well, welcome, welcome to my world. <laughs> right? 
So something happened in terms of my writing career where it was potentially going to take off. Something really good was happening. So I started and I didn't kind of want to do what my father had done years before, which is where he sab sabotaged himself. Hang on, I'm going to just cut my video for a second because I'm going to move back up here on the couch. And I didn't want to do what my dad had done, which is sabotaged his experience. I didn't want to do that same thing. So I started seeing a counselor and I actually saw a counselor who was um, uh, a spiritual, you know, had, had the, the background um, in terms of counseling work, but also had a, a spiritual bent to it. And I started seeing that, that person. And I was seeing a, a man and he said, I think you would actually do. And I actually went because I, I was showing up because, you know, I have this great thing that's happening in terms of my career and I don't want to sabotage it. And as he's kind of getting more information from me about my life, you know, some of this, this story comes out about the, the, that I just told you, right? And he says, I think you would actually do better with a woman because I think you actually, so I, I had a good career thing happening and I was, you know, having the, concurrently I was having the, the health issues. And he said, I think you need to see a woman because you've got some real issues with your mother. And until you forgive your mother, you're never going to get better in terms of your health and nothing is ever going to happen for you that you want to have happen in terms of your career. And I said, um, well, first of all, my mother doesn't have anything to do with either of those two things. And um, basically you're crazy and I'm not going to do that. Mind your own business. Why are we talking about this? And he said, yeah, you definitely need to see this woman. I can't, she's going to be helpful to you in a way that I, I'm not going to be able to be helpful to you. So I start seeing this woman and she's amazing. And I'm just going to use her name. Her name is Lisa, beautiful African-American woman. And I go there and I sit down in the first session. And meanwhile, the, the career stuff, it, it actually kind of, you know, it, it went south. It didn't, you know, the thing didn't, the thing at the time that I wanted to happen didn't happen, but I was still dealing with the health issues. And I was 39 years old and I was a year away from turning 40. And that's kind of a relevant part of the story here. So um, in the first session or two, I end up revealing and telling her everything that I just told you. And she said, yep, yep, you definitely need to forgive your mother. If you want to get better in terms of your health, she said, you have to start meditating and you got to meditate twice a day. She said, but you also need to forgive your mother. And I said, my mother is a bitch and she has nothing to do with my health issues. And she leaned forward and she said, your mother is a divine child of God, as we all are. And she has everything to do with your health issues. And I stand by what I said. You need to forgive your mother. And so I then tell her everything that I just told you. And now, but I tell it with real juice. And I, I lay it all out. And I said, and I culminating in the, you know, showing up at the MS Society and what that, that social worker said to me. And, and I said, so how do you like that? So this is the woman I'm supposed to, to forgive? 
the woman who I've had this diagnosis for seven years, and she's never even inquired about me, never asked about my health. That's who I'm supposed to forgive. And she said, huh, she said, wow, that is a pretty amazing story. I said, yeah, see, now you know what I'm talking about. She said, no, what I'm saying is you are really, really lucky. And I said, what do you mean I'm lucky? She said, Sheila, if you had finally gotten the love from your mother that you'd been trying to get from her for a lifetime behind being sick, do you realize how motivated you would have been to get really sick? And I knew exactly what she was talking about. I felt like somebody hit me with a bataka. I knew exactly what she meant. And I had tried to get love from my mother for a lifetime. And if I'd finally, if my mother had finally responded to me when she heard that, it's like, wow, I finally have my mother's response and I just told her this. What would happen if I went blind? What would happen if I ended up in a wheelchair? Oh my God, maybe something really amazing would, like, I got it. I absolutely got what she said. And that took me immediately, just like a well done fourth step and fifth step and fourth column of the resentment thing can do it. I got jettisoned out of the victim stuff. And for the next year, I worked with that woman in my 39th year before I was turning 40. I worked with her to, um, to get past that anger. And a year later, remember I told you when I told the story and I said how I started another run with getting off sugar in the fall? I started in November. That was in November of 2003. So that was after I'd been in therapy with this woman for a year. And I've, I've had a transformation. Something has happened. Because I didn't want to turn 40. I didn't want to be one of those women who was 40 years old and Alcoholics Anonymous and still bitching and complaining about her mother. I didn't want that. I think that was kind of what was fueling some of this. But it also just happened very organically. So then I started in November of 2003. I stopped eating sugar, remember? Went through uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. And then I remember I told you, and again, I don't know who's been on the call. There's just a few of us maybe who've been on here all day. But on January, Monday, January 12th, I, I did something that I'd never done. Remember I told you my mother's birthday was February 23rd and Christmas is Christmas. On Monday, January 12th, after I'd been in therapy with that woman for about 14, 15 months, I called my mother out of the blue. My dad had died um, before, uh, years before, but I, I, uh, I called my mother. And my mother and I had the conversation that I imagined we were both going to have to be deceased. And we were both going to have to be in the afterlife before we were ever going to have this conversation. We talked for about two hours. And I asked her everything. I went back everywhere in my life. And I got to that 
most important question. And I said, why did you not ever call me when I got diagnosed? Did you not, do you not love me? Why did you not call me? And she said, oh, Sheila, she said, no, I love you so much. I love you. I was so afraid you were going to do what your brother had done to me and that you were going to blame me for what had happened to you, that you had this diagnosis because this ran in my family. And I said, no, 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 no. I was never going to do that. And I wasn't going to do that because you all have already had a hold of me for years. I wasn't going to do that. I already knew an Alcoholics Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous and Al-Anon. That's not the way to play it. I said, no, I was never going to do that. I was never going to. I always considered it the biggest blessing. I said when I was being wheeled in for the first, my first MRI, I just had another MRI you know, a week ago. I said, but I, I was automatic. I was thinking no matter what happens here, it's, you know, it's all going to be, I'm calling it good and very good. And it's all, all for the, you know, the, the, the glory of, of God, right. All for the blessing. I said, I never would have done that. She said, I didn't know that. And I said, for seven years, I, I thought that's what the story was. And she said, no, that was never the story. And so for the next three months, my mother and I had this incredible relationship, you know? And then in March, my sister called me and she said, you got to talk to mom. My dad had died years before, a couple of years before, and my mother had remarried. And she said, you got to call mom. Remember, whenever there's a crisis in my family, they all think I'm nuts because I go to 12-step programs. But whenever there's a problem in my family, I'm the first one they call. She said, you got to call mom. And you got to talk to her. She said, she's having memories come up about the violence. And my mother never talked about the violence in our home. That's, that's part and parcel of an alcoholic family. There's bad stuff that happens and you don't talk about it, which makes it worse. She said, you, you got to talk to her. She said, she's, she's got the memories coming up and you've, you've got to talk to her. Cause I don't know how to, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to say. Please call her. So I call my mom and my mom is just, just, you know, she's, kind of crying and really, really out of it. And I said, mom, what's going on? And she said, I can't, I can't, I don't know what's happening. I don't know. And I had never heard my mother talk about this. And I know that our, we're, you know, we have a half an hour Q and a period, but I'm going to ask your indulgence because I might need an additional five minutes. I might need to go till 35. Cause I do want to tell you the end of this story. And my mom said, um, she said, Sheila, she said, I don't know what to say. She said, but the, the, the feelings are coming up. You know, the, the memories are coming up. She said, I have not, I have not thought about this stuff. I have not, uh, it's, it's never come up and I'm, it's coming up now and I don't know what's going on. And I cannot, I cannot handle this. I do not know what's going on and I cannot handle this, but I cannot take it. I don't know what to do. And I said, mom, I said, I have a feeling that it's coming up because it's coming up for you to move through it. I said, I, I, I know this kind of based on my own life, the only way out is through. And I think it's coming up because you're settled now. You, my parents didn't have a happy marriage. 
yeah, I said, you're in this, you know, happy marriage now with the sweet little old man. I said, I think, I think that's what, what's happening is you're feeling settled in your life and the, the, the things are coming up so that you can move through. So you can move through. She said, Sheila, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I, I, I barely made it through my childhood. I cannot do this. I cannot go through this. I can't do it. And I said, mom, I said, I would do it for you if I could. I swear to God, I would do it for you. I would absolutely, uh, if, if I could do it for you, I would do it for you, but I can't. But I'm just telling you, the only way out is through. She said, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. I can't, I won't do it. I won't do it. I said, I will go, I will, I will help you. I will, I will help you. I will go through this with you. You say the word, you say the word and I will come home. I will come home. And I will stay with you. And if you want to go to therapy, I will be in the waiting room. If you want me to go into the therapy with you, I'll do it. If, if, you, if you want me to rub your back when you're falling asleep at night, and I'll be there in the morning when you wake up, you just say the word. You say the word, and I will come home, and I will go through this with you. And she wouldn't say the word. And a month later, she got back into the sugar. You know, because remember, my mother was a diabetic and had the sugar addiction, just like I do. She got back into the sugar. She gained 20 pounds in about a month. And all of a sudden, this mother that I'd had access to for four months of my life, where she was available, I had access to her heart. And she was talking in a tone of voice like this. She went back to this one. She went back to answering the phone. Hello? Because the sugar had gotten her, right? And I had two nephews that were, I had a niece and a nephew that were graduating from high school. And, uh, uh, no, two, two nephews. And four days before my, Neil and I were flying home. My mother went into a diabetic coma and she never came out. So I never got to be in a situation where I was in a room across from my mother, looking into her eyes and holding her hand and feeling her and being really present with her. But she was in ICU and my husband and I would go and we would stay late and they, the nurses would let us stay and she was in a bed and they always say that people who are in a coma, you know, you always want to be conscious about what you're talking about because they can still hear. And so my husband and I, we met singing in a choir. He's got a, you know, we're both singers and we would stay there and we would be singing songs. And my husband has a really great sense of humor. And my mother had a dog. My great, well, my grandmother had had a dog, this dachshund and, and, um, named Max. And when my grandmother died, my mother got the dog. And now my mother presumably, you know, was in this hospital situation and was potentially going to die. And my uncle, her brother said to me when we were home dealing with her in the hospital, he said, well, who's going to take that dog? 
Max when your mom dies? And I said, well, I'm not taking that dog. Everybody that takes that dog dies. You know, I'm not taking that dog. You, you know, I think the, I think the older husband should keep the dog quite frankly. I mean, he's 85 years old. So, you know, so we would stay there in the hospital at night and we would sing to her and stuff. And, and then my mom, you know, I just wanted her to come out of the coma. I just, once I just wanted to be looking in my mom's eyes when she might be present and she might be seeing me and I could be seeing her. So I was saying to her, mom, you gotta, you gotta wake up. You gotta come out of this coma. You just gotta wake up. And I said, you, you really, you, you, you definitely have to do it. I said, if for no other reason, you gotta get up because Neil is giving your dog, he's giving him a complex because he's calling him maxi pad. And my mother was a big woman, you know, she had a big belly and her belly started like jiggling. And I knew she was laughing, you know, I knew she could hear and she'd been hearing us sing and she could hear us, you know, she could, she was laughing and, and she, you know, she just didn't, she didn't come out of the coma and stuff, but I'm just so grateful that it's all because of all of you that I had that experience with my mother. And I, it wasn't until like 10 years afterwards that I thought, you know, my mother couldn't be there for me when I had a really, you know, got the scary diagnosis and stuff. I'm 35. Thank you so much. But because you all have gotten me sorted out, all my mother had to do was indicate that she had a need and I told her, you say the word and I'm there. But because I'm also a card carrying Al-Anon member, I don't jump on a plane and fly home if I've not been invited to do so. I'm not here to solve anybody's problems or take over anybody's life. But I just want to thank you before we open our little Q&A. You know, thanks for letting me schnot and snort through this story. But I just, it's because of you that I had that whole experience. It's all of you. It's everything that we do here. And so sometimes I wonder, like, why do I still do so much? And I have sponsors who kind of say, you know, I think you should back off a little bit, a little bit. But I got to tell you. I have a life because you gave me a life. So I figure I owe you my life. And I'm just so, so grateful that we're all here together and we remember and forget and remind each other over and over again that this is the easier, softer way. And I am just, uh, I'm in love with Overeaters Anonymous. I'm in love with all of you. And I so thank you for for being here with me uh, today. And I'm, uh, you got a lot to teach me and don't go anywhere because I'm not going anywhere. And uh, when I forget this stuff, somebody's got to be here to remind me. So thank you very much. And, and, and I'm Sheila, I'm a compulsive overeater. Oh, thanks guys. Thank you, thank you. 
Hello, I'm Jordan and I'm a compulsive overeater. I'll be asking Sheila questions. If you have any, please directly message me. Um, but we've gotten a few so far. Um, the first one, um, they want some clarification about what you said. Um, it says in quotations, it's about the dot, 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 not the perfection. Um, this person says that I am so rigid with what I consider a food plan of abstinence. And because of my perfectionism, I'm constantly restarting over innocent, over innocent mistakes. What yeah. did you say? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what I said about perfect. Can you repeat it again, Jordan? Just the beginning part of it. I want to, but yeah. I, it yeah. just says in quotations, it's about the dot, 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 comma, not perfection, question mark. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see if it's going to, um, yeah, if it'll come back. But but here's what I would say if you're somebody who struggles uh, um, with, the, uh, with the perfectionism is we did a workshop two weeks ago on the, the sponsorship workshop. And my sponsor is Nanette and she spoke from, I wanna say, was it 1130 to 1230? I think she spoke from 1130 to 1230. And we, we did uh, lunch from 1230 to 130. I think I've got that right. Yeah, I'm almost positive. Um, and I cannot recommend it highly enough that you go to the website and, and find that, that workshop from two weeks ago. It was on October 24th and listen to Nanette's share. And any opportunity you have, try and listen to her because she talks about this over and over again, that this is a disease that has nothing to do with food and everything to do with perfectionism. And I, I, I just know for me, I, 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 I already, there's no way I'm gonna do this perfectly. I tried to do it perfectly. And that was part of what the, the, the 12 year pursuit was. Because again, I had to have a sponsor and a dietitian pull me aside and say, no, we're declaring an abstinence date for you. You're 45 pounds less than you weighed, 45 to 50 pounds less than you weighed when you came in here and you're still not claiming an abstinence date. And why wasn't I claiming an abstinence date? Because I wasn't doing it perfectly. So um, I, I, once I got past that, I, I just thought I, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to be honest with my food. I'm not going to game play here. I don't want to, to, to be in a situation where I'm going to be dealing with being overweight and the, you know, the X factor of weight and how that can affect things like balance and stuff like that. So I'm not looking for, for a, a get out of jail free card. I don't want to eat fried chicken and bonbons and pretend I'm, you know, doing this right. But I do know that I don't have to do it perfectly. And that, that pursuit is actually damaging to me and anybody around me because whatever I'm doing with food, I'm doing in every area of my life. So if I have this idea with food that I need to do it perfectly and only perfect counts, get ready for the ride because you're all going to get subjected to that. None of you are going to be doing 
anything to my standards. Why? Because I can't do anything to my standards. So I figure that since whatever I'm doing with food, I'm going to be doing in every area of my life, what I've decided I'm going to be doing with my food, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try and make the healthiest choices. I'm going to be in integrity. And when I screw up, I'm going to be lovingly compassionate with myself and not punish myself and make a different choice at the next meal, the next time around. So that's it for me with that. Thank you. Um, just a quick note, I've got a few people saying thank you so much for your amazing enthusiasm. So I thought I'd just let you know. Thank you. Um, the next question is, Sheila, what does your higher power feel like to you? Ooh, what does it feel like? Yeah. Question. Nice. I love, <laughs> I love that. Um, I I think what it is, and it's funny, I'm going back to, I, you know, I mentioned I was raised Catholic and I'm kind of going back and doing some kind of some Catholic stuff. And, uh, uh, but I, what my higher power feels like is here's, here's, and I love that. I love that component of the question, right? Cause usually you don't kind of hear it that not, what does it feel like, but what's your higher power, you know, what's your idea or your higher power. So I'll get back to the feel part of it, but I do want to say this, that I realize I can worship any God I want to worship here, you know, cause you get to choose a higher power of your, you know, God, as we understood him. Right. Um, or, or as my friend in England says, my friend Nikki said, who also spoke two weeks ago at the event uh, from 1030 to 1130, she says, uh, God is I don't understand him. My higher power is I don't understand him. <laughs> but um, I can worship, believe in any God I want to here, worship any God I want to, as long as I'm willing to emulate that God. As long as I'm willing to emulate that God. So what I've decided for myself is I want a God where everybody gets forgiven, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want there to be a hell. I don't want there to be an eternal damnation or punishment or anything like that. I don't know how that could be possible. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people who are really loving, you know, I'm, I'm sure yeah, there are, I'm staring at women on the screen, I'm sure, and, and men, right? But I'm sure there are certainly, you know, we always kind of think of it in terms of mother's love. And I think, you know, a father's love is, you know, it's only an eyelash behind a mother's love, but there's, you know, there's something really holy about parents' love. And, and my mother's love was holy. My mother gave me everything she had. She just didn't have a lot in her bag. That's all. But she gave me everything she had. She, she opened up that bag upside down and gave me everything she had. She just didn't have a lot in there because nobody had put anything in her bag when she was a kid, you know? So, um, so I can worship any God I want to, as long as I'm willing to emulate that. Well, I want, I want God to be all loving. I don't want anybody to get punished. I certainly wouldn't want anybody to get punished eternally. I mean, you know, I, I kind of think of somebody that I'm, you know, who I, who I might be at my angriest at somebody. And I might think, okay, well, I don't want you punished eternally. Maybe, you know, maybe give you a bad, uh, you know, a bad serving of egg salad at the, at the, at the deli, you know, maybe give you some, you know, some, some food poisoning, right. Give you the, give you the runs for a good 12 hours. I might wish that on somebody, but I certainly wouldn't wish eternal, 
damnation and punishment on somebody. So how could God? And again, I don't, you know, it's all about, you know, people say, well, you can't understand it because you're not God. It's like, well, but isn't God love? I mean, sometimes I like to do that when you ask, like, what does God feel like? I think God feels warm and compassionate and the way it feels when someone is really being kind to you. You know, sometimes I like to think of God as just love. I, I sponsored somebody who was an atheist and he said, Sheila, do you think God might just be love? Is that possible? And he said, and I've always been confused about God's will. Do you think it's possible that maybe, maybe God's will is just taking the next loving action? And I thought, wow, who's sponsoring whom here? You know, like what a profound thing. And I sometimes like to do that. I like to take the word God out and I like to put love in. So like step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with love as we understood love, praying only for the knowledge of love's will for us and the power to carry that out. Made a decision, step three, made a decision to turn our will in our lives over the care of love as we understood love. Like, what a powerful thing. So I think what it feels like is the way it feels when someone is being understanding, kind of the St. Francis prayer embodied to understand rather than to be understood, to love rather than to be loved, to be forgiven, right? All those things, those wonderful ways it feels when somebody is just handling us so gently. I'll close and I'll tell you this. I told a story about this. I pu was pulling into that Thursday morning, that 6.45 AA meeting that I keep referencing. It's an open meeting, by the way. If you ever want to go to an open AA meeting, you'd be most welcome. It's on Zoom. I can give you the details. Be in touch with me if you're so inclined. It's a format from Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul, who did the on acceptance, Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul and his wife, Max. But um, I pulled into the meeting and there was somebody who was part and there's right across the street, there was a 7-Eleven. So she was probably waiting for somebody in the 7-Eleven. She was sitting in her car and I pulled in and I um, I accidentally tunked her, right? The, her, her bumper. And I was waiting for the, I was waiting for her to look up and kind of, you know, maybe grimace in the mirror or kind of, you know, do this kind of a thing. And I remember she looked up and I saw her in the mirror and she just smiled. And I think she went like this, right? Just like, and I, I remember feeling so, so loved. I was so waiting for the, you know, the, 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 the stick that was going to metaphorically bump me on the head. Because that's what I was so used to. That's what I was so set up for in my home and experienced so much of the time. And it was just so loving. She just looked up and just kind of, she might have had a coffee cup. She, she, she gave some indication in the mirror. There was a smile and it was just, oh, hi, good morning. And went right back to whatever she was doing. And I got out of my car and I walked by. And I think it was then that she looked up at me and smiled. And I walked into my meeting. And she, you know, later, you know, she wasn't coming into our meeting or anything. That's what God feels like. Just that love when you just need it the most. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, the next question is about um, doing the fourth step. How do you avoid getting bogged down in a lengthy fourth step? I end up 
with stacks of inventory forms, but I never feel as if it's thorough enough. Mm. I don't really finish, but I still have hours of pages to read to someone. How do I cut to the chase? Mm. Yeah, again, this is where I really like a big book inventory. Um, uh, and the, the thing that I found that works the best is like doing a four step is like pumping a well. I don't know if you've ever pumped a well, but you know, you pump, 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 pump before the water starts coming out. And if you stop pumping, what happens is all the water, right? That the, the pressure that was getting it closer and closer to the surface where it's gonna come out the spout, you stop pumping, the water goes, you know, gravity has its way again. And it just, you know, goes right back down. And when you come the next day and you start pumping again, you have to do all that extra pumping to get it back up. So a four step, doing a four step is kind of like pumping a well. You gotta do daily work. You have to do daily work and you don't wanna stop because it makes it that much harder to get started again. Plus you, you lose the momentum. But it, 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 the, the problem with a four-step, four-steps get such a bad rep in program, so many people complaining and you know, hearing, we hear stories like this, right? We hear these kind of things. And I know you're not complaining, you were just in conversation and this is your experience. But there is so much drama and um, challenge that people have experienced or they've laid on top of a four-step that it's just makes it that much harder to get going again if you've stopped. So I know for me with people that I work for, I require that they do four-step work every single day. And that might involve, you know, when they're on the four-step, I might have them checking in when they're sending me that email at night indicating, you know, at what point, you know, what, what point are you at now on the four-step? If you're doing the four, because there's different four-steps, you know, there's one that has a bunch of questions. It's got like 170 questions or something. So if I was doing that kind of thing with somebody, it would be like, okay, well, what question, what, what number are you on now? And I want people to do 15 minutes a day because that's how much writing they do for me anyway when they're doing. So you're, you're going to do the same thing when you're on a four-step. And if I'm working with people now, because I work exclusively out of the big book, they're just doing the big book inventory and I'm sending them those templates. So they literally don't have a lot of material to do, to, to, to cover. There's just not a lot to do. If you, had, if you end up and you have a lot of resentments, that's fine. But we're taking the story out of it. You just got that little box and that's all you're doing. You're just, you're, you're boiling things down. You want to get down. It, it talks about it. You want to get, you're doing a four step. We want to get down to causes and conditions. You don't want to be in the story. You don't want to entertain. Nobody needs a catharsis here. We just want to get down and figure out what the cause what the source of the pain is, what causes it, and what are the conditions that allow it to uh, amp up. We just want to get away from that. So I have people doing daily work, 15 minutes a day. And, um, you know, in terms of this, I, you know, with, with somebody who's got a, you, you've got all these pages, I'm not sure what the solution is there. I'd be curious what your sponsor thinks. It might be that it's, you know, again, depending on what your sponsor says, this might be a situation, you know, you've got a template, we, we, we attached, you know, that got attached in the chat, you can print that you can print, you know, double the pages, if you need more pages, you're probably going to need more resentment pages, who knows if it if it makes sense to your sponsor, maybe you just take that and run with that. Maybe you start over, you know, tabula rasa, start with a page one, I don't know. 
but um, but I know that daily work is the way to play it. And I don't ever want anybody spending, you know, 12 hours on a four step. Now, if somebody just, you know, ha- get, gets filled with the with with the, the sunlight of the spirit and they want to do 12 hours. OK, but um, but you will get it done by doing 15 minutes a day. I've never had anybody take longer than two months doing a four step, doing 15 minutes a day. And that was when we were doing four steps that weren't big book inventories. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's my thought there. Thank you for that. The next question is, I love my sponsor, but he is not a compulsive flipper. How do I broach the seminar with him without sounding like I'm telling him how to sponsor me? I'm not sure he'll understand concepts like honesty as abstinence. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what, what, what the, the issue is with your sponsor. So, um, um, I'm not sure that I can answer this, you know, maybe take my, you know, take, take my number off the chat and call me and we can chat a little bit more. But, um, but if you've got a, a sponsor and you're somebody who is a slipper and you've got somebody who doesn't have that experience and is already has been working with you, you've already got somebody who's really wonderful, right? Because it's not easy to sponsor chronic slippers. I will tell you that. And if you don't have the experience, it's even harder. So, um, so again, I'm not sure that there needs to be a change. I don't know what your concern is about, you know, call me and, and let's chat and we can we can talk more about this because I'm, I'm not quite sure that I have enough information to, to answer the question. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, next question. Um, unfortunately, this woman's husband died during COVID and she she said, what if my husband died during COVID and I can't get the love? I don't know. I'm just really sorry for your loss. I'm really sorry. Thank you. Okay, next question. What experience, service, or strength and hope would you share about how you dealt with the medical physical changes that happened out of your control? Sure. I just want to go back to the question before just again I just want to say I'm really sorry for your loss and I'm not sure what the question was there you know call me and we can we can maybe chat more um if it's in terms of getting the love from the fellowship uh you you fall in our arms and we will we will drag you to the winning love side um and again I'm just I'm very sorry for your loss it's a very difficult time and, you know, especially given all the limitations in terms of how you can interact with people and things. I'm just really sorry for your loss. And uh, sorry, Jordan, what was this one again? Sorry. Yeah, sorry to get by that. I didn't mean to. Uh, what experience, strength, and hope would you share about how you dealt with the medical, physical changes that happened out of your control? Sure. Oh, yeah, no. And, and right. And again, longer, and I know we don't have time. But um, the big thing is, is really just, I just kept surrendering. And I had, I had some concern because this back injury, I was thinking there was an exacerbation that was going on in terms of MS because I started having real problems about three months ago. I had to start, I had to get a cane. I don't use it all the time, but um, I mean, I don't think I've even used it today, but, but I had some real concern that something was going on there. And it was only that I, you know, I went to a, a the, I went for my annual physical and then I went and I saw a, neuro, uh, 
a neurologist and got some film done and it, it looks like it's been a, a, a it was my, an, an exacerbation of these two major back injuries I'd had in the, the last 30 years, 35 years. And so, um, but I got to tell you what I did is I just, I, I got really clear. I did the wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? And um, shared with sponsors, shared on a few outreach calls. And, um, but I just got very surrendered and I realized, and I don't mean it like, oh, I just got surrendered. It was a process, right? It was a, it was a process, but I, I got very clear that this is not my life. This is God's life. I, I am here to be of service and whatever, how that looks. And, you know, I, I've got, you know, those two rich older sisters that I have, and they're both, one of them is physically active. The, the richest one is the most physically active one too. And on my bad days, I, uh, I, I, I feel very envious of her. And, um, and I surrender and let that go, you know, and I just feel where I feel it in my body when I'm feeling that envy or feeling that sadness or feeling that anger. And I just self-soothe, you know, I find I it in my body and just, just love myself and just lots of acceptance. And again, we could chat more about this, but, but yeah, no, it was really just kind of surrendering, letting it go. It's all, it's all God's business, God's life, God's business. There's a friend of mine in AA. He, I love this. His name's Riley. And he always says, I don't got problems today. He said, I do not have problems today. He said, God's got problems. I've just got shit to do. So I love that. Cause it's just about like, so show up for the physical therapy, do the step. Yep. Thank you so much, Noam. I just, you know, I, I love that. And I just get mindful about just stepping in and, you know, being on task. Do we have time for any more questions or are we done now? You can give me one more. I, I'll, 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 I'm staring at the clock. I'll. What if you take someone through the steps and they're still eating? I believe you said you have sponsees start sponsoring after they've given away their fourth step. And then they, thank sure. you for an amazing workshop. Sure, sure. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I've never had anybody that we start going on the steps and they, they keep eating. They might not be eating perfectly, right? But I've never had anybody who is still binging, chronically binging. I just haven't had that experience. But if somebody is still in the food, because if somebody is still in the food, right? They, they, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have them start sponsoring people, but again, I just haven't had that experience. So, yeah. So that's it. Yay. We did it with 30 seconds to spare. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Um, one last question real quick. Um, I, I think I was given the wrong phone number for you. I have an extra digit. Um, do you mind just pop in, in the chat or verbally saying it sure sure it's my phone number <laughs> that's great yeah see that's that's why i tell you yeah that you know how so i've been saying all day long call me all day call me call me give me calls right that's why i slipped an extra digit in there no my phone number is 310 right 310-413-1745 310-413-1745 and in general i guess calls i do best between 9 a.m and 9 p.m uh pacific time as a as a general rule Thank you. I'll put that in the chat as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yay. We did it. We did it, Morley. We did it, everybody. Final thank you. I want to thank one more time. I want to thank all the people because there were just all these incredible people, people volunteering all during the course of the day. Graham, 
Diana, Jordan, Gnome, Dave, Sandy, Frank, Lauren, Patty, Mark, Kathy, Katie, Louise, Rod, Morley. And I was, it was just really a pleasure to be here all day with you. My name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive reader. And yay to all of us. Okay, thank you folks for coming to our retreat. Thank you so much, Sheila. It's been a wonderful experience. And we will make this available on the OALAIG website. We've been recording it. And give us a little while to get it on, you know, get it on the site and you can find all of it. And uh, if you have questions about the, about the forms that were shown, um, you can call and ask to have that sent to you as well. I'm sending, sending them to a couple of people already. So thank you, everybody. And this concludes the workshop. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Love you all. Nighty night.